All right. So uh, welcome back, guys. We're here with uh, Michael Roviello again for part two of what's been a very, very cool story so far. Uh, today we're going to jump into some really interesting stuff. I know a lot of people have questions about things like ayahuasca, things about Wim Hof method, some of the things that Michael has been introducing me to this year. And I've told him I'm open to all these experiences, so he's just kind of been pouring into me very <laughs> generous that way. And uh, tonight we're going to continue on that path we, we ended on uh, in the first episode. So with that said, Mike, man, thanks for being here, man. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for all of the the uh, sharing you did. It was such a gift. And I'm super excited to dive down this rabbit hole a little deeper with you, brother. Thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to be back. And um, yeah, we... It's been an interesting process just reflecting, you know, I mean, I got invited to a few podcasts recently and invited uh, up here to talk with you and you're always just, I was just like really pondering like, okay, like, you know, what, what do I want to share? Like, what, what is my story? Right. And I've had an opportunity to kind of dive into that since I've been self-employed, starting my own business and kind of writing my own bio and uh, revisiting my experiences from childhood, growing up in New York. We talked a lot about that, my experiences in the military and how that shaped me. Um, you know, all the work ethic that I, that I learned and gained, um, you know, in New York and, and also applying that in, in the military setting and then applying that as well to the corporate world and um, all the experiences that I went through throughout that. So this has been actually really a wonderful process and giving me an opportunity to reflect and um, really spend time and think about um, what's my journey actually been so far. You know, I'll be 40 next month, and um, I still have a lot of time to go. But it's been a it's been a wild ride for the last 40 years. For sure, man. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's been really cool for me too because it's given me an opportunity to kind of go deeper with you. And uh, you know, I know it seems kind of artificial to say that on a microphone, but that's sure. exactly how I feel. And, um, you know, I want you to know that's genuine and that you are appreciated for being here. Thank you. Appreciate and, uh, yeah, man, you're absolutely right. We left off. You, you talked about your story, your, your military training, your corporate world. And I think this is one of the things that makes your story specifically interesting because growing up, you know, New York, um, going into the military, doing a pretty dangerous job, then going into the corporate world, you know, how does that, that I mean, that path doesn't necessarily signal you know, spiritual training, Wim Hof, ayahuasca ceremonies, it doesn't really signal any of that. No. So maybe you could talk about how you first, <clears throat> you know, sort of reconciled this idea that you're going to start, um, you know, looking into the plant world and talk a little bit about, um, you know, how ayahuasca came to be in your life. Sure. I mean, I was always interested in information. Um, I think that really started in the Navy when I was in high school and as a younger man growing up in, in New York City. I, I kind of had a block with school. I was just like, oh, school's a place where you have to go and learn, and, you know, and I'd rather be outside doing other things. Um, so I didn't really take it seriously, and I wasn't interested in a lot of the subjects. Um, and that really started to change in the Navy um, because we had a lot of downtime. You know, when you're on a ship, I was on an aircraft carrier, and you're out to sea, and a lot of times you're traveling from one point to the other. And in the helicopter community, a lot of times when the ship is traveling, we're not necessarily flying, flight ops is suspended, and, and we're just trying to make way to, to get to the next location. Um, so we had a lot of downtime. Even when we would land, um, you know, before the next flight the next day, there'd be downtime. So you only have a few options. You eat, you go and eat uh, at the, you know, uh, basically a cafeteria, you know, on, on board ship. You can play some video games. 
um, we had one in our birthing. So, but there was a lot of us. So, you know, take take a while to yeah. get your turn in. <laughs> um, you could go to the gym and work out. Uh, that was an option, which was cool. Not all ships have that ability. On aircraft carrier, it's pretty big. We had 5,500 people, so we had two gyms. Um, but working out on a ship is not easy because it moves. Yeah. I'm trying to do bench press. Dude, it's a floating stuff. city. Yeah, trying to squat, bench press, curls. You know, really, it was challenging. Um, but you also have a lot of downtime to read. So I took advantage, and I started to read a lot, and I just became really interested in information, uh, all sorts, psychology, uh, self-development, self-improvement. I uh, was really trying to get an idea of like what I wanted to do when I separated from the military and go into the business world and opportunities, how to make money, uh, things that I didn't learn, you know, growing up. Um, I just, I learned how to work. I didn't learn how to create money. So it's like a different, you know, it's like a different muscle, you know, how to create money versus just to work for it. hundred percent. So I started really getting fascinated with all that. And I just started reading, 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 reading. Um, and that stayed with me and I'm glad I'm still that way. I read a lot. Um, but I really fell in love with documentaries. Documentaries was like my thing. Um, back in the day, you remember documentaries. It was like discovery channel, BBC. They were kind of cheesy. They weren't really well developed. I mean, you might take a class in college and they would, you know, roll in the TV with the VCR and they'd pop in a tape and it was like some, documentary from the 80s or something like that real cheesy it was always low budget low budget last bottom of the barrel you know people that you could get exactly the last 15 years i would say especially with the birth of netflix um documentaries are just everywhere now yeah it's huge man youtube netflix amazon um really good stuff really well done really well prepared and i like documentaries because i can like scan through a lot of information and really see what i like and, and like watch, you know, an hour and a half documentary and get a pretty good idea of the concept of what I'm learning there. Um, and then if I want to go deeper, I can, I can go and buy the book. And if I want to go deeper, I can actually go and like maybe seek out the experience itself. So I was uh, researching um, mainly because my health at the time, you know, I had gotten interested in, um, you know, kind of self-healing because I had all those problems with my neck and pain and the surgery. And I uh, had taken a stand that I wanted to do something about it and really figure out how I can solve this problem. So I started to follow a variety of different people through documentaries. Dr. Bruce Lipton was one of them. He wrote a book called The Biology Belief. And he also has a lot of, uh, you know, um, mini documentaries and, and talks and interviews and podcasts, stuff like that. So um, I started to just continue to learn, learn, learn. And, you know, when you start researching those categories, uh, eventually this ayahuasca came into my consciousness. And it was just a, uh, it was just something that I thought was interesting at the time. It didn't capture me right away. It wasn't one of those things like, I need to go do that. I want to go down to the jungle next week and I'm going to go have this experience. I remember a long time ago, I was living I was living in Scottsdale at the time and um I had met this guy and he was uh he became a friend and he was like a world traveler he had money he had done he had a lot of life experiences so I thought it was really fascinating um he was sharing some experiences from the jungle and uh he had mentioned that he'd gone down there, and that just sounded so foreign to me like oh wow you went to the Amazon jungle like 
like like why would you do that specifically for an ayahuasca ceremony yeah he didn't really quite share that yet but then he like talked about it and he had talked about drinking this brew and the brew was like tasted really gross and he had all these uh, like um you know interesting experiences and uh, self-reflection and all that and um I just kind of put it in my back pocket. Like it, that too didn't really stimulate me. I was like, oh, cool. Not something I would think about doing actually. I was like okay with not wanting to try that for myself and was just generally curious about his own experience that he had. So there was that. And then there was a documentary called DMT, The Spirit Molecule. And that was more about DMT, not necessarily about ayahuasca. DMT is it's in all in in a lot of things. It's not just in ayahuasca, but uh, specifically it's in ayahuasca. And um, they were doing a study at John Hopkins um, University or medical school, and they were using DMT on patients, and they were basically using it as a therapeutic experiment to see how this uh, chemical um, would interact with the patients and how that would help them resolve some of their uh, trauma or different experiences that they had in life. And I thought that was really fascinating. And a friend of mine had turned me on to that documentary and they had talked briefly about ayahuasca in there. So I knew a little bit. I just knew a little bit. And um, same thing. I mean, through all of that, I I really had no need to to go and do it at all. And um, a friend of mine had introduced me to a girl who... um, who had later on became a girlfriend of mine and she was living in Brazil. And so we were talking, you know, back and forth, getting to know each other. She was living in Sao Paulo and I was living here in Phoenix. And as we were getting to know each other, she had asked me one time, she said, have you ever heard of ayahuasca? And I said, yes, I have. I have heard of it. And you know who else? I was uh, really into a guy by the name of uh, Graham Hancock, Mm. if you're familiar with him. I know the name, but I'm not... Fingerprints of the Gods. Yeah. Yeah, and he was uh, kind of like, a, he was a writer, I think he wrote for The Economist, but basically an archaeologist, he's traveling the world, studying ancient sites and um, trying to recreate, you know, the story that, that maybe occurred and not really accepting, um, you know, what we've been told when it comes to our history, mm-hmm. you know, and our ancestors. And I always found that really fascinating. And I spent a lot of time researching ancient cultures and he had talked about ayahuasca quite a bit and I had watched uh, a couple of talks where he would, you know, go through his experiences. Yeah. And so I, I was familiar with it. I remember him because uh, I just pulled it up on Wikipedia just to refresh my memory. And uh, I remember he caught a lot of hell for his views. Uh, in fact, here in Wikipedia, they're calling this a pseudo archaeology book by Graham Hancock, right? Sort of a tongue-in-cheek way of throwing an insult at someone. Yeah. See, the society really seems to do that anytime they don't want to uh, accept, you know, another opinion of how things occurred. But a lot of things that he talks about, they're actually find, finding the scientific proof and evidence that it did occur, specifically the Sphinx and um, the watermarks and how the Sphinx is actually much older than, than we thought. And that kind of throws off a lot of the history timetable. You know, if the Sphinx was built 2,500 years ago, and then we're learning about the watermarks, which indicates more of a, a build 9,000 plus years ago, well, that kind of changes the story. Drastically. It, yes, yeah. drastically. And how sophisticated we may have been uh, many years ago, mm-hmm. where, you know, 10,000 years ago, we were supposedly Uga Booga, you know, <laughs> hunter-gatherer, <laughs> couldn't build stone tools. Right. And then they find these sites that are 10,000 years old, plus yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't match up. 
and that's happening more and more. And that happened in Turkey as well with uh, a famous site that they found there, and that's um, uh, Gobeki Tempe. I'm saying it wrong, um, but if you just spell G-O-B-E-K-I mm-hmm. um, in Google, it'll find it for you right away. And that was found, I think, sometime in the late 90s. And they've done some carbon dating. It's a very sophisticated city that was essentially buried under the sand in Turkey near the Syrian border. And uh, they haven't found any tools, so they really have no idea how they built it. But they've done some uh, carbon uh, dating, and it's just a really old site. Yeah. So it throws off everything. I mean, how were people building this stuff 10,000 years ago? And they've only unearthed like a third of the city. There's so much more to explore. Mm-hmm. There's a, I think I remember there being an island, or maybe this, maybe you can, I'm sure you've read about this, but some island or someplace sort of remote that has like the statues of the heads and the faces kind of facing out toward the ocean. Have you seen this thing? Oh, you're talking about Easter Island off the coast of Ecuador down in Is South it America? Island? Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, did they ever come up with a methodology as to how those monuments were built? No, there's yeah. so many mysteries that are really unsolved and how they were built and mm-hmm. who built them and why they're there and, um, all of that. Um, the Sphinx is really interesting. The, the, the great pyramid of Giza and all the shafts and mm-hmm. the, there's water underneath. There's a big water chamber underneath. And now they've done some, um, what do they use, like a seismograph or something of that nature, a, like a ground-penetrating radar, and they realize that there's a room underneath the paw of the Sphinx, and they haven't gone in there yet. But There's but, always another level. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know, and you know, I think it's really important to, to pay attention to our ancestors and our history, and there's a lot of clues and signs about you know, maybe where we come from and what this journey is all about. I mean, because the game of life is just so interesting. It's like, what is this? Like, yeah. what, what are we doing? What are we what, this playing this interesting game of being born and all these expectations of how we should be and what we should be doing and what happens when we die and just who knows man yeah yeah that it's interesting i'm just curious what your take is you know there's always this tendency to have for humans i think to have this idea that if we don't understand how it was built it had to be aliens or something supernatural right what's your take on that Oh, it's really hard. You know, I've studied a lot of different uh, folks and I've spent a lot of time with, um, you know, learning about ancient cultures. And, you know, I, I'm really in line with a lot of stuff that Graham says that, that we were really sophisticated at one point, like really sophisticated. And that's why we talk about places like Atlantis. And that's why we have the, the pyramids of Giza and all the the laser kind of cuts down in South America and Bolivia and Peru and um uh, these great pyramids of Mexico, Teotihuacan, and recently under Teotihuacan, they found this giant chamber, and there was um, liquid mercury and pyruvate in there, and liquid mercury is like super toxic. So yeah. it's like, how are, these people, you, yeah. how are these people handling that sort of material? So it seems like we were really sophisticated at one point, um, I would say greater than 10,000 years ago. And, um, and then, you know, throughout all the biblical texts, you know, and all cultures seem to have a very similar story of the great flood. And the great flood uh, is kind of like a reset for mankind. And there was obviously things left over that were able to withstand these floods. And um, kind of was started, like starting over and going back through the stages of, say, hunter-gatherer and very basic consciousness and understanding and learning how to utilize metal and tools and building and all that sophistication, which makes sense because, you know, we have cities now, megacities. Right. But we can't build some of the things that they built 
thousands of years ago. We can't figure out how to do it or how they did it, how the cranes, and they didn't have those sorts of tools and the, the, the precision and then the alignment with the stars. And it's like, how did, how did they know so much about the stars and yeah, the alignment? Yeah, it could be accidental. Yeah, how do they know so stuff, much yeah. about the stars? I mean, you know, we were just learning about like the moon and outer space, like not that far, not that long ago with Galileo and stuff like that. So, um, you know, there's a lot of hieroglyphs and, and different things that show that there was a planetary alignment. And, um, so there's a lot we don't know. And that's kind of where I leave it. I, I'm just, I'm fascinated by it. I'm called to it. Uh, it's interesting to me. I like reading books about it, I like watching documentaries. I like following, you know, uh, the current news about what they're finding and, mm -hmm. and what that means. Um, but, you know, with with media and any other source, it's always hard to really find the truth to the, the, the story as to what that all means, um, what's hidden, what's actually given out in the public. But there's some really good people doing great things and really spreading the message, and we're learning a lot about um, our ancestors. Yeah, for sure. I, I think I'm of the same opinion. It's it's a definite curiosity of mine. It's something that, you know, I'm drawn to any mystery anyway. Yeah. And there's a part of me that wants to believe, you know, that, you know, aliens came here and populated the planet <laughs> because it's such a simple solution, right? It's See like, okay, problem solved. You know, there's nowhere, there, you know, there's, there's, there's no need to know all this stuff because, you know, these guys showed up and they did it for us kind of a thing. But then the theory that there was... Um, civilization that was so advanced it could have created some of the things that you're talking about and then it was washed away that's also very interesting you know and who knows maybe it is true I don't know Sumer I mean the Sumerians I mean the Sumerians come from what present-day Babylon mm -hmm. which is present-day Iraq and uh, they had tablets and their tablets have been deciphered and there's a lot of information and you can go online and, and find out about the, the, the deciphering of these tablets. And they have a very elaborate story. Mm -hmm. Why we don't pay attention to that, why, why it's just dismissed as nonsense, is, it's crazy to me. You know, I, I'm learning a lot about anytime there's anything that challenges the, the status quo. It's uh, conspiracy. It's nonsense. The person who came out with this is crazy. It's a lot of like character kind of uh, attacks on these people. And it happened to Tesla as well, who is, we know is a genius. I mean, everybody talked about, you know, Edison, 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 you know. Um, but Tesla was beyond Edison and what he was creating. Many of the things that we use today were, were inventions uh, made by Tesla. But he was painted as a kook and crazy. Yeah, Edison was a good marketer, though. And Tesla was not. He was sort of awkward from what I understand, from what I've read about him, he was a little bit more introverted. Way introverted. Yeah, but he yeah. worked for Edison for years, and, uh, <laughs> you know, there was a bit of a rivalry there, obviously, with the ACDC thing. Exactly. He knew. It was like, yeah, this doesn't work. It doesn't this cost work. a lot yeah, of money. It's shitty. stupid. Like, <laughs> there's a better way, and I can create it, and, and he did. Yeah. And, Me meanwhile, uh, Edison was killing elephants and... Yeah, experimenting, <laughs> and... Yeah. yeah, and then he was on to the whole free energy movement. And, right. You know, no one wants free energy, like... We want to charge people for energy, and yeah. he was really determined to find a solution to that with the Tesla Tower that they had. In that like was the coolest thing, man. Long Island, like, New York, and yeah. he was able to prove that he can. He couldn't get it funded, you know. He, he got had, it funded. Well, actually. yeah, Morgan Stanley funded it, and then when they found JP out, Morgan. JP Morgan, yeah, yeah. JP Morgan uh, funded it. But once they found out, and he was in the copper lines business, once they found out that what he was actually working on, um, they burnt it down, mm. they shut it down. And yeah, I thought that. Uh, I thought he built it i knew it got funded he, he started to build it or develop it but for whatever reason he ran out of funds and i thought morgan, it was built 
pulled funds or something like that, and he didn't have enough uh, wherewithal to keep it going. He needed more data, he needed more research, but yeah. he built it and it worked. But he was, he, his whole idea behind that was to transmit electricity wirelessly. Through the ground. Yeah. Using the energy of the ground. What was he saying? One square meter, uh, sorry, one square centimeter, uh, there's enough energy in one square centimeter to boil all of the oceans of the world. Mm. So there's a lot of energy all around that if we can learn how to harness that, that it would solve uh, a lot of problems that we have. Because, I mean, most of our conflicts around the globe have really been fought about energy and resources. Mm -hmm. So there's an abundance of energy and resources that we haven't uh, learned how to harness. So I just found all that stuff fascinating, documentaries, books, podcasts, listening to experts in their field. I feel like you could learn a lot from somebody who's been in their field for 20 or 30 years. And then they get to, you know, spend two hours with you on a podcast and just talk to you about, you know, what they've learned and their experiences. So I really gather a lot of information that way. So ayahuasca was in my consciousness. I knew about it. Not much. I didn't know about the shamanic traditions of it. I just knew that it was a plant and it was taken and it created experiences. And when I met that girl in Sao Paulo, Brazil... Um, she was frequently going to ayahuasca ceremonies in Brazil. Um, they had gone through a process where in Brazil where they, the, the churches had challenged the state or the government, and they had kind of like a freedom of religious uh, act process, and they allowed for the sacred sacrament of ayahuasca to be used, and ayahuasca churches started to pop up throughout the country and present day, both in Peru and Brazil. I mean, it's just, it's part of the culture there. I mean, it's not everywhere. I mean, Catholicism is still the main driver there because of the Spanish colonization and, uh, and all that that occurred 500 years ago in Portuguese colonization in Brazil. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, ayahuasca is live and well in Brazil and Peru, especially Iquitos. Iquitos is on the base of the Amazon River, um, a few hour flight from Lima. And um, Westerners from all over the world are traveling down there to learn more about plant medicine and um, indigenous medicine. So, um, yeah, so she would explain to me her experiences and type of healing that she had uh, received from working with these plants and um, the type of community that she was connected to and it sounded really fascinating. So when we made the agreement that I was going to go down to Brazil and we were going to meet and spend time together, you know, it was going to be like a vacation. And she had asked me if I was interested in, in participating in a ceremony. Uh, with the people that she knew and trusted. So I had agreed. So part of our agenda uh, for the two weeks that I was there was to do regular stuff and get to see Sao Paulo and the city and eat Brazilian food and go out and do Brazilian dancing and all that fun stuff. But um, I think, th yeah, three separate occasions in the two and a half weeks that I was there, we did ayahuasca ceremony. One of them was a Santo Daime, church, which is like a combination of uh, Christian-based practices mixed with the indigenous plant medicine, and that's interesting. It's like a lot of prayers, and people wear white, and it's more of what you would think of when you think of the word church, mm -hmm. um, but you do drink the ayahuasca, and you sing a lot of prayers, and the prayers are in Portuguese, so it was really difficult for me, uh, it's, and there's dancing involved too, um, and, and then I, I went through the shamanic practice, which is more... Uh, native to you know the jungle and the practices of the indigenous people and tribes of that area 
and that's where you kind of just drink. You sit in your seat. Um, it's pitch dark, and there's a variety of different songs and music, and um, and that's its own experience. But um, all of my experiences were positive right from the very beginning. There was a little bit of fear going in, of course, because I didn't know how I was going to feel, what types of things that it would bring up in me, what types of things that I had been suppressing for many years. Um, when you say things that would bring up in you, what do you mean by that? Like repressed memories? Repressed like, memories. Stuff like that? Yeah, repressed memories, stuff that you're holding on to that you kind of like just let go and you didn't want to revisit because you're like, oh, that happened a long time ago and we think we're over it, you know, uh, until we get triggered and then it comes right. out, right? Um, but we think we're over it. So things you maybe not haven't dealt with. Haven't dealt with. Like exactly. traumas and stuff like that? Yeah, just haven't dealt with. So I was really, I was concerned. Plus there was this huge language barrier because I was the only one there that spoke English. I think there was one other guy there that spoke English. He was a Japanese guy, actually. And he became a friend of mine. He spoke Portuguese, Japanese, and English. Um, there's a lot of Jap- there's a big Japanese community in Brazil. Mm. After World War II, a lot of Italians and Japanese and Germans went to Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay. Right. Post World War II, the kind of get out of Europe because you know they weren't exactly you know Europe's favorite people at that time uh, because of all the chaos that that uh, Axis powers had created. Right. So it became a huge collection of Italians, Germans, and Japanese. So I think his parents had moved there after World War II, and he worked as a volunteer at the center. So he was the only one that spoke English. And when you drink this medicine, like you're kind of going to be offline for a while. You know, it's pretty powerful. And I knew that going in because I had watched documentaries. I, I had an idea of what I was getting into. And she had shared a lot of her experiences. So I was really concerned about the language barrier. I'm like, well, what if I need help? Like, who am I going to talk to? She's not going to be able to translate for me. There's no 911 in the jungle, baby. Yeah, so I was like, oh, no, how's this going to go down? But um, it was all beautiful and wonderful, and I had an amazing experience, and um, I made peace with a lot of things that night, and I really experienced joy, and I really felt my heart open, which was like, oh, what is that? I forgot about that. I forgot about that whole heart-opening thing, that love. You know, I was too focused on success and doing, doing, doing. I was really kind of a busy guy. And um, yeah, it was really beautiful and wonderful. And the people there were wonderful. And I really felt at home there. And it was nice. And uh, so my, my, my experiences were positive right from the very beginning. And there was the purging aspect of it. So if you watch an ayahuasca d- documentary or you've read an article, you've probably read at this point that there is like a throwing up. Mm-hmm. And that usually scares people away. Oh, I'm not interested in throwing up. You know, I don't want to go drink that. And I didn't have that fear too much I figured okay well if it happens it happens but I didn't really understand it either I was like I mean the only time you throw up like growing up is like all right you're sick and you have the flu or stomach virus and that's not a good feeling like you don't want to be in that state or if you had too much to drink Mm -hmm. and that's not a good state either because you're spinning and you're spinning and you're spinning and then eventually you throw up and then you're like oh you kind of feel a little bit better and then you fall asleep and you wake up in the morning you feel like shit you know that was my correlation with throwing up but they call it a purge and purging is like an energetic release and it makes more sense now especially that I've had a lot of opportunity to work with these plants and this medicine specifically uh, the energetic release is uh, really therapeutic because we hold on to a lot of energies that no longer serve us and we pick them up through our conversations our thoughts our interactions with people 
And our body has a way of releasing those. Crying is another one. It's a purge. I mean, crying is kind of this weird thing, right? Like all of a sudden you could be fine and normal and then all of a sudden you start crying. Like, and I haven't cried in years. I wasn't like, I had blocked that off. I was really of the nature of like crying is a form of weakness. Like you shouldn't be crying if you're crying. Like, you know, pick up your pants and let's go. Like, you know, like, like, like stop being don't be a pussy yeah stop being sorry feeling sorry for yourself you know i was always in in that mindset right so i didn't realize that you know how therapeutic you know say just people get to release and they cry and that makes sense though when you i mean when you think about it right i mean emotional release yeah i mean i can think back on uh the times in my life where i've had like a really hard cry and then i remember how light i feel after the fact right you feel light yeah it's really it's wonderful and when we suppress those kinds of things uh, they build up and they cause us a lot more suffering and energetically they're problematic. So I learned about all these things, um, but I had the purge my first night. I remember I said, Oh, they, I, that's the thing that they're talking about. Yep. I feel something and, um, I feel a little nauseous, so I might as well just let it out. I'm not going to hold it. One of the pieces of advice was if you feel nauseous, don't suppress it, release it, let it go. And I did. And while I was purging, I felt wonderful. It wasn't like a, please make this stop. Please make this stop. I help, help, help. It was like, get out, get out, get out. Right. And I was actually having visual, visualizations of the, the, the conversations and interactions that I had that were coming out of me. It was really this grand experience. I was like visually seeing like the person who I was hating on or was hating on me or the, this block that I had with a family member and my relationships um, being released from me and I felt so light and wonderful after. So I just had a great deal of respect for that process and I was happy to let it go. And from that point on, I really was never fearful again about drinking ayahuasca. And if I was going to get to the point where I would feel that nausea and would have to purge, I just knew that it's part of the process and that this is difficult work. And I had signed up to do the deep work and I was okay with it. Yeah. So a couple things on the purge, I want you to talk about uh, just a little bit, because uh, when we spoke uh, previously, when we reconnected, I guess it's been a month or so ago, two months ago, uh, we were catching up at the coffee shop and you were explaining, you know, why you felt like the purge was valuable and what it meant in terms of paying a price. Right. Um, Because so many people want to shortcut everything. And I wonder if you could talk to that uh, and just kind of give people what you gave me in that particular conversation. Yeah, I, I remember us talking about this. And you know, I've learned a lot about the healing process through my own personal journey. And I've worked with a wide variety of different people now, hundreds of people actually, hundreds, uh, you know, going through these different experiences with ayahuasca and um, other medicines, you know, related to nature. Because it's like nature's medicine is what I like to really refer to it as. I, I see the cold water as an element of nature and medicine as well. Um, if you would ask me that 10 years ago, I, I, I wouldn't say those words, but I, I do today. And in the West, here in uh, the Western kind of aspect of medicine, we want to be healed by somebody or something, but there's no work involved in that process. It's like when you, they prescribe a medication or something like that, you take this pill and you wait for it to work, and there's really no... There's really no involvement. No investment. Yeah. No investment. Yeah. It's just your money. That's the only investment. Right. In many cases, it's insurance money. You're paying a copay, so it's not a big investment. Right. You know, um, you pay your copay, 
you get your medication, you take the white pill, and you wait for it to work, and you hope that you feel better. Uh, these medicines are different, and they're like uh, they're primitive and old and ancient and wonderful because you're involved in the actual healing process. You're going through that release. You're going through the um, recollection of of your life and the processes and the the thoughts and the feelings, and it's a really deep work. And um, you kind of have a stake in the process. And I think that's where real healing uh, occurs when when you actually have an involvement in the process, um, rather than just yeah, just fix me. And that's why I see like doctors can get so frustrated because they're just dealing with patients, you know, coming through who are living kind of chaotic lives. They're not eating well. They're not managing stress well. They don't even get a chance to get to know these people like at a deep level. They don't have time. I mean, what's your doctor's appointment? 15, 20 minutes tops, you know, face to face time with the doctor. Yeah. They have a general idea of what might be going on, but they don't really know emotionally, especially if that patient doesn't open up to them. Right. And even if they did, they might not even have the tools to really deal with that. It's not their field. And they're um, incentivized to get you in and out as quickly as possible. Of course, yeah. exactly. It's how the insurance money works. It's how they collect. That's how they have a successful, you know, a business, you know, if they're, um, you know, in office, right? So I love the idea that these medicines require you to work through the process. And it's, um, it requires your, you know, your vulnerability. It requires your patience. And it requires some suffering and hard work in order to actually have these releases. I love that, man. And, um, and that release can come in many different forms, crying, laughter, purging. Mm-hmm. And we carry a lot of anxiety in our gut. I know I do. Um, when I was going through some of my hardest times and I was feeling low and my anxiety was, at, you know, it was, was really high and I was depressed and um, not clear, um, I would wake up every morning and I would gag in the shower. That's how I started off my day. My day started off with me gagging in the shower. I would take a shower and while I was showering, I would gag, which is essentially like throwing up. Sometimes I would throw up in the shower, but it was just like a little bit of bile. Like it, was, it wasn't like a big throw up because I was fasting all night, and, you know, digesting most likely. But energetically, I was like having this anxiety release. And I would finish my shower. I would go into the kitchen I would drink my coffee, I would get in the road, and I would drive to work. So you're thinking the, the gag reflex was based on the stresses that you were under? Yes, it was my body's way of releasing stress because the stress had gotten too high, the body had to release it somehow. I wasn't doing any therapeutic practice to release this in a healthy way, so it was my body's way of getting it out. It has to get out because otherwise it's like really problematic for the system, the system can't operate well. So I would uh, do that. And the only person that was really familiar with this, you know, with me doing this was like my living girlfriend at the time. Because she would wake up in the morning and get ready and she'd be like, what, are, what is going on in there? Like, why are you gagging? Are you sick? And I'm like, no, like, I'm not sick, you know. I, I, like, I didn't eat anything bad and um, intuitively I knew I was stressed. But I, I didn't want to share too much with her, like, you know, how stressed I was because I wasn't comfortable showing any signs of weakness of course uh but yeah i gagged for years in the morning uh, in the shower years yeah years and at times it was worse than others and it would disappear for a while and then it would come back especially if there was like arguments in the house and you know or there was some sort of drama i would see that it would get worse and i never understood it um and uh, when i talked to the doctor about it, it was just like 
acid reflux and, you know, watch your diet. Usual. Watch your diet, that kind of stuff. Um, But now I understand it really well. And I don't gag anymore. I haven't gagged in years. And I, and I, I don't... I don't do that because my body is a lot cleaner than it was. I'm managing my energy a lot better than I did. I have more control and influence over my energy now uh, because of the practices that I adopted, um, both with Wim Hof method and um, the plant medicines and meditation and, and different things like that. And I'm okay with being vulnerable for once in my life. Like I'm okay to surrender to vulnerability. That was just something that I wasn't willing to do. I wasn't okay with that. I didn't like the word vulnerability. I thought, once again, it's weakness. So um, when I started to change my perception and, and change my thinking, um, I started to really, my energy was just a lot better. And I get complimented on that a lot. You know, people in my presence, oh, you're really calm, really grounded, feel really comfortable and safe around you, these types of things. And it's, ah, my energy's a lot better. Yeah. Where when I think about what people would say to me in the past, it was like, I was intense. I could be a bit aggressive. Yeah, I remember the before and after, Michael. Yeah, yeah for sure. I've sure. known you long enough to know that. So when you're um, going through the ayahuasca ceremony and you're experiencing the purge, at that point in time or after that, that's when you sort of one-to-one that to the gagging in the shower yes. and your body wanting to let go. Yes, I started to see trends, right? Because I did so many different ceremonies over the years, you know, and I've seen so many different people go through the process and all the sharing that happens both before and after. Right. And I started to hear like these really interesting sounds coming out of people. Because when you do ayahuasca, you're fasting pretty much the whole week prior. You know, you're, not, you're eating, but you're eating uh, like a really simple diet. And when you're in the jungle... It's like no salt, no sugar, um, really bland food, no meat, um, no sex, like a, like a lot of like discipline, mm-hmm. you know? Um, you're not like uh, splurging on like, oh, look at that, you know, brownie, that looks so good, and I want a chocolate milkshake with that, and all that kind of stuff that we, you know, that we uh, numb ourselves with. Um, but I started to see patterns in the sounds that were coming out of people. And you would see somebody purging for like good five, maybe 10 minutes or so, really going through like a real heavy process, especially if they were living like hard. And you get to know people before they go into ceremony and you know when people are living hard or not. They're managing stress well. Yeah, they got a lot of miles on them. Yeah, yeah for they've sure. been living rough for a while. Yeah, for sure. And you hear, you know, and everybody, you know, has these things and you hear these sounds coming out of people, these high pitched kind of sounds, like a gagging sound. You know, it's like where you're trying to throw up, but nothing's coming out. Mm-hmm. And then you would look in their bucket and there was not, practically nothing in there. It wasn't like filled with fluid like you drank a, you know, a, a case of beer that night, you know. It was like a little bit of fluid. And mostly it was the ayahuasca that was kind of in your belly from the beginning of the night. And mostly there wouldn't be a lot of food because you were fasting. Mm-hmm. So what are all these sounds coming out? What is that? What is this release? What's the energetic release? It's a body's way of expelling energy and releasing that and getting rid of it. And we have to do that. And um, I also saw um, a clip, and I don't know where I found it, but it made a lot of sense because, you know, I think all the, na- all the answers uh, are in nature. And I saw two swans, and they, and they talked about how swans release energy. And the two swans were, were competing for territory or mate or something like that. And the swans were fighting. And swans, are, they can be kind of nasty, you know, and they're like going after each other and they're all puffed up and trying to appear bigger than they are and all those things that we, we do right. um, primitively, right, to um, 
you know, uh, to win the fight yeah, or to, like a couple of kids going at it, like a couple of kids or like a bar fight, <laughs> just going to Scottsdale, you see you know, yeah. people puffing up, right? Nice biceps, bro. Yep. So, um, I saw the two swans fighting and obviously if you ever got into a fight, it doesn't matter if it's physical or like an argument, what happens to your energy? It gets real high, right? Your energy just gets really high. Like you just dialed up the button and when the energy is real high, you can obviously attack, you know, physically or you could attack verbally with words and you could start cutting people down with, you know, words that you think would hurt them, right, energetically. So right. words hurt just like, you know, a fist can hurt, you know, and, and people are, uh, are um, you know, receiving this energy. And these swans were doing that and they were fighting, they were pecking at each other, but they were, their energy state was more like who's going to back down first, you know? Like posturing? Posturing and whatever, you know, whatever way they, they kind of communicate. But the minute the fight was over and they both swam away and they must have established, okay, like this is now your territory, you won, whatever process is going on there, they both fluttered their wings like crazy. Their whole body gyrates. It gyrates like crazy. And they kind of release that anxious energy out into, you know, into the air, into the universe. And it's gone, and they go right back to their calm, normal state of just swimming around and finding food and doing what they do. That, that's, uh, I think that's powerful. Um, one of the one of my mentors talks about how it's important to release the rage, right? And uh, in today's world, think about how many opportunities do you really have, especially as a male, to go somewhere and release everything that's bugging you, everything that's built up, right? Like if you do that around other people, you're perceived as being some sort of maniac, some yes. sort of psychopath, some sort of dangerous, idiotic moron. But the reality of it is, is you have to get that shit out of you. There's ways to release it in a healthy way and there's ways to release it in an unhealthy way. And because we're not taught, we, ex we experiment and we don't know what to do, but we know we need to do something. Um, I don't know exactly what every single way is like that's positive way but i know that there's some toxic ways to doing it and people will go and they get rowdy drunk and that's their way of dealing with their problems you know i got into a fight with the old lady and i'm gonna go to the bar and we're gonna drown these problems out and i might get in you know get a bit rowdy that night and that's my way of you know uh cutting the edge or uh taking the edge off i think that's obviously an example of a very unhealthy way of dealing with it uh, we talked about suppression as being a really unhealthy way of dealing with it. Mm -hmm. um, but there are uh, positive ways of uh, dealing with it health in a healthy way. And um, the ayahuasca creates this energetic purge um, through the front and through the back. <laughs> um, and that happens, and that's a thing. And uh, that's okay. Your body removes toxins through that. There's um, people who will cry. I've, I've met a lot of people who say, wow, I haven't cried in years, years. I haven't cried. And just numb. Uncontrollably, yeah. I had to cry. And there was like all of this sorrow that was, you know, that was released from me from, you know, the passing of my mom that I never, you know, um, you know, I never acknowledged, you know. I never dealt with it. I just, you know, became stone man and I never quite dealt with it. And that was hanging on to me. And, um, yeah, so the medicine kind of goes in, and energetically it knows what's going on. It knows where there's this unstuck trauma. It knows it's there, and it helps to remove that as part of the cleaning process. And it's really fascinating. And um, I've seen a lot of different examples over the years of how people release energy and, and how you can feel lighter 
and more clear. I like that idea you shared with me uh, when we met originally. You were talking about getting sick versus getting well. Yeah. And that perspective. Yeah, Native Americans, you know, um, you know, they, um, we call it getting sick if you're having to throw up um, because, like I said, we throw up because we are, you know, drank too much or we, you know, ate something bad and now we have a stomach flu and virus. Uh, but they look at it as getting well. And uh, I've even seen this with dogs. Like, you know, the dog will go out there and eat grass until it throws up when it's feeling sick. Well, why is he doing that? Why is he doing that? Why is he eating the grass to make himself throw up when he already knows he's sick? He's trying to get his body clean energetically. It's a really interesting concept. It's just like when you're, not, when you're sick, why don't you eat? Your body basically forces itself to, to fast. You know, we go into a fasting period. We're not, when you're sick, you're really not hungry. It's not like you want to go and get a burger down the road. Your body's like, nope, we're going to shut off the food switch. We're in healing mode, right? No food. Give your body an opportunity to recover. Obviously, a temperature, like you might get a temperature, a fever now. So your temperature rises. It's fighting an infection or a virus. You know, our body has all the mechanisms needed to take care of ourselves. We just have to really trust that process and be in tune with it and um, have a good practice of energetic release. Mm -hmm. And um, that all starts with just understanding, you know, what we're doing conceptually and then allowing for uh, those types of processes to occur in everyday life. And that's why you see this big movement with meditation now. More and more people are, are taking on meditation and learning to meditate. Uh, you're seeing a, a big movement in uh, flow and people using movement to... Um, um, have releases through uh, yoga practices and and dance and all of these really old arts. These are all old arts. That it's not yeah, new stuff. The most basic form of human expression: yeah. vocalizing, movement, and then what you put in your body. Yeah, yeah. And you always have control of those things, which is interesting. You mentioned earlier in uh, in your story, you talked about how closely tied something like ayahuasca is to you know, like the native religions and then also the mix with Christianity. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that because I think uh, a lot of people see this as, as an outsider looking in. I see this as something that, you know, people kind of do to shortcut the process and sort of take advantage of, you know, like the active ingredient to start rewiring the brain without necessarily understanding the connotations inside the context of religion and its history. To give you a better question, like, uh, when you're talking about the Santo Daime Church, is the ayahuasca ceremony literally written into part of the the process of being a member of this church, if you will? I'm using air quotes. Sacred sacrament, yeah. Sacred so sacrament. they use ayahuasca as a sacrament in the process. Okay. They still honor and and pay respects to Jesus Christ. And uh, even in the jungle, by the way, I just want to throw this out there. It's not like any of this is separate from Jesus at all, because um, I was raised... Catholic, so Jesus was a big part of my consciousness from the time I was born and still is today. I never became an atheist, but I definitely pulled away from the Catholic Church. I just didn't like the way the, 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 the what the church was doing. I, I didn't care for what it stood for. I wasn't getting any therapeutic kind of relief or I didn't feel like there was anything spiritual going on when I attended church. But I never became an atheist. I always believed in higher power. I never dismissed Jesus through any of that process. But it was really unique as I started to open up spiritually and actually pay attention. Like, okay, like I have this spiritual muscle that I haven't been working on for many, many years. 
um, and really didn't pay any respects to it at all. Um, when even when I was in the jungle, they talked about Jesus, and these were like indigenous people. They talked about him, and they respected him, and they kind of looked at him as like a shaman. Sure, I mean, whether you are a Christian or not, you can't deny that Jesus was a great teacher. You know, for example. Well, you would think in the jungle that they would maybe not adopt that story. Maybe they just thought it was, you know, that there was a possibility that there was just a story and there's been a lot of, you know, influence and wars and different things caused over, you know, who's God, right? Essentially right. that happens in like the world religions, you know, who's God? No, my God is right. No, my God is right. And there's a lot of that back and forth stuff. But they uh, they acknowledge him and they respect him. And they, even in the, when I was in Brazil, my first ayahuasca ceremony, the, the, the center that I went to, the main piece on the wall, in the middle of the wall, where everybody sits, you know, in a big, uh, it's like a big rectangle room, was Jesus's face. Really? Yeah, so he was wow. involved in all the ceremonies. <laughs> like, he was involved. Jesus and, is the greatest network marketer ever, right? Yeah, I know. So yeah. uh, the Santo Daime Church kind of takes it a step further, because that really feels like you're in a traditional Christian church, because people are wearing white pants and a white shirt, and they're singing kind of hymns. And um, um, But you, it'd be like going to church mm-hmm. like you like you would today, and drinking the ayahuasca instead of the wine, which like they communion. don't. Yeah, they don't even drink the wine anymore. I don't think. I know they give you the the little supposed to be a piece of bread, the little wafer right. when you do the communion. Just think about like if you went and you drank ayahuasca, but you went through the process of the the the, the church prayers and the songs and all of that, but there was just some purging involved, <laughs> and that's how it was. And they sang songs and they said prayers, and we had to recite the prayers. And there were certain moments of the evening where you would stand up and like do this dance called the bailado. It's like a really like a two-step back and forth. It was really interesting. They used the rattle to kind of control the energy of the room and women were on one side. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and it, it, yeah, it was, it was fascinating to have that experience. Um, so, you know, one of the, it's interesting. One of the things that to me, you know, I, I grew up in a religious household, you know, Southern Baptist, that oh, yeah. sort of thing. Sure. But one of the most interesting things to me about religion was how um, a family or a community could claim to be a believer in, say, Christ, if you're a Christian, yeah. for, for example, right? But then when I would go to church, it's like people were half asleep, and they're somber, <laughs> and they're not really there, and they're just sort of numbed out, and they're like literally timing the pastor to make sure that they get out you know, in time oh, for yeah. lunch kind of a thing. Get back in time to watch that football game. Yeah, exactly, right? And, and it's like, okay, why are we even doing this? I mean, you guys really aren't here here, but you're not here. And so when you, when you drew the sort of line between ayahuasca and religion, my mind immediately went to, okay, was... Well, is this what's happening in the native world? Are these guys showing up to church and they don't really want to be there? Like they want to go and watch the, you know, the next soccer game, you know, what, what's going on? Not you know? down there. Yeah. They want to be there for sure. Uh, you have to pay to be a part of the ceremony. Um, one, so the payment involved and, um, and there's work involved in it because you're going to be going through all of your experiences. And, you know, I have a lot more respect for prayer and all of that, because, you know, I was like, well, why do they want me to pray? What is praying? What is that? Like, I, I questioned that for many years of my life. I just thought it was hocus pocus, really. I just thought, you know, it's just reciting words. And I didn't, I don't even think I really knew how to pray. Um, and meditation, like we didn't do any of that in church, although it's probably a part of church. I think it's probably removed from church because I've been to some churches now that like meditation is involved. But this whole idea of this inner stillness and connecting with your higher self and all that kind of stuff I just have a lot more respect for it and understanding, deeper understanding of that today. 
Um, and I and I learned that from the plants and the power of prayer. And prayer is really powerful. It really is. And words are really powerful. And thoughts are really powerful. And we misuse them all the time. You know, especially our thoughts. In, in your mind, though, you know, how would you verbalize the the power of prayer? Like, you know, I mean, that sounds like we're on, you know, the religious channel of yes, TV, right? And yeah, it's going to sound yeah. weird to people, right? But of course. I mean, I what is it. it? What does it really mean? In, to you when you say that it's powerful and that words mean things and that sort of thing? Um, our thoughts create our reality. And, um, you know, we think that, we, that like we're hiding in our mind because we're just like thinking thoughts, but nobody can hear them and not realizing that they're actually transmuting into the universe at all times, both good and bad thoughts. And we always do that. We'll be thinking about somebody and we get that phone call. And we're like, holy shit, you know? So there's a lot of science and quantum physics now really starting to dial in on the power of thoughts and frequency and vibration. And that's really helping. I think that's really starting to bridge the scientific community and um, the religious, or I don't even like to say the word religion. I like spirituality because it's more all-encompassing. You know, religion to me is like establishment and it kind of puts a bad taste in my mouth and maybe for some of your, your viewers as well. Um, but it's really starting to bridge the gap between science and spirituality because we're learning that thoughts are really powerful and spoken words are powerful. And words like hate and fear, fear-driven kind of words, and then there's words and thoughts of love. And prayers are, are essentially you know designed in a love-based kind of format. And, and they're like affirmations. And affirmations is like a thing now. People like have these affirmations that they say to themselves and you know to really kind of change their vibration or change their state and to manifest we have the ability to manifest things just by thoughts mm -hmm. so prayers in my opinion work in all of that so if you have if you uh, do pray but praying is not just like reciting the word and oh like i said a prayer for him and you know we should be good now but it's like that process of mind body feeling sending you know, love, like we, we have a lot of power, human beings. There's a, there's a great book by Napoleon Hill and it's not thinking grow rich. It's called uh, outwitting the devil. I've heard of it. I haven't read it. It's definitely worth a read. It's, it's not about spirituality or religion, No. but it's about, um, basically a conversation. He's writing about a conversation that he's having with what he calls the devil, which is like the lower self, the ego. And he is, you know, going back and forth in this sort of logical battle with the lower self. Mm. And I love the way that he defines prayer in the book because he basically just says prayer is a thought released. And I love that. It's just, it, it just really gets down to it Yeah, because you contrast that against, you know, like I remember growing up in church, you know, and like people are praying, you know, uh, dear God, I want a Corvette. Yeah. You know, kind of stuff. All the bullshit. <laughs> yes. The yeah. bullshit. Yes. Yeah. Me, me, me. Right. Like, but the when you train, yeah. When you break it down into this idea of transmuting a thought into some sort of reality, it, it gives you a new sort of take on what your intention might be when you really want to create a positive good or a positive act in the world. Just think about somebody that's going on a road trip that you deeply care for and love right? And you're concerned about them because they're going on that road trip. And you're thinking about them and you're, you know, sending them love, like, you know, consciously and unconsciously, you're sending them love. And um, I think those things are, are, are real and they're received. And we know when, when people are sending, you know, uh, poison darts at us or they're sending us love, we know. 
Um, in my first ayahuasca ceremony, it was really interesting. I, I learned a lot of really basic things that I thought I understood, but then I realized I didn't know shit about them. Mm, do tell. So the main thing, that, one of the main things that really stick out from my first ayahuasca ceremony was intention. Now that word is just used so much. Like if you're in the whole self-development world, like yeah. everything is about self, uh, setting intentions and we're going to have a class on how to properly set intentions and just intention, intention, intention. I've heard the word a thousand it's times. It's a total buzzword, yeah. Total buzzword. Yeah. And um, I didn't really pay too much atten attention to it, really. I knew what it was, kind of, but I didn't use it correctly. And she let me know that I wasn't using it correctly. And the example that came up for me that helped me to really understand it was, just think you're at work. Let's just say you're in a corporate setting, and you're writing an email to a person in another department, and they're in that other department, and you're upset with them for whatever reason because they didn't get something done or they missed something or they're behind on schedule and there's obviously a frustration involved in your relationship with this. Or maybe you don't even like them. This is like the person that you have to communicate with. Like, I hate this son of a bitch, but I have to be nice to him because I'm at work and human resources is a real thing and yeah. all of that. So you're going to paint this email in a pretty, very pretty way. You're gonna type up this email, and it's gonna be very professionally written and really thoughtful, and you're gonna to put together your words. But basically, you're saying, fuck you. Inside, <laughs> you're saying, fuck you, yeah. you know, to them uh, for what they did or didn't do. And you need them to pick up the pace. But you can't tell them like you really feel. Like you can't tell them like you want to mm -hmm. pick up the phone, right? Because then there's repercussions for that. So you're painting this picture in this very professional email, and then you're hitting send. And they're receiving that at some point in their day. They're going to read that email. And they might read all the fancy words and well-written words, but you know what? They're getting the fuck you. They feel it. They feel it. And we've been on the opposite end of that, and we've been on the receiving end of that, and we've been on the sending end of that, and we know what that is with communication in general. And then we deny it. And then we deny when it. When we're called on it, right? The honesty or the dishonesty and lack of integrity just continues. Yes. So I really, are, I'm way more mindful of what my mental state is, is when I'm communicating with somebody today. If, if I'm in a frustrated, pissed off mood and I have to send an email and even though my to-dos are piling up and I want to get these emails out, if I'm annoyed with that situation or that person, I'm going to pause and hesitate and wait and breathe until I get to a good place and then send it from a better place because I'm using more, I'm using intention more intentionally. I'm using it um, uh, with more power rather than just operating, thinking that I'm masking my intention with words because energetically, energetically we feel it. So I learned that and that was really interesting and that's really started to shape the way I communicate with people because I thought maybe I was doing a really good job of communication with people, thinking that because I was good with words or I can write professionally, um, I can mask how I was really feeling. But I was saying fuck you to a lot of people around me, and they were receiving that, and that was obviously shaping their image about me. So that was really powerful and really specific, and that was something that I learned from a plant. I didn't read a book. That, wasn't, that didn't come from like a book I read. It wasn't like a, a lecture or a presentation or a podcast. That was self-reflection, in a ceremony, learning about how to properly use intention. And that to me was fascinating. And that's what really opened up my eyes. I said, wow, I've been reading a lot of books and watching a lot of documentaries, going to a lot of seminars for a long time. 
And I was learning a lot of information. But there was a whole other kind of information that I wasn't even tapping into. And when I started to tap into the natural elements of learning, um, and I started to surrender and be more vulnerable, that's when I started to really make uh, progress very fast in my own development. So you had this realization during the ceremony? Yeah, in the middle of the night in the ceremony. And how did that come to you? Um, It's hard to explain, especially if somebody hasn't had the experience. It just sounds so crazy, and I get it. And and if you're listening out there and you you think I'm crazy, that's okay. I'm okay with that. Um, It's like you're communicating with the spirit. And even that word scares people. They don't even like the word spirit because, oh, there's no scientific proof that there is a soul and all that kind of stuff. And, And fine, you're right, there isn't. But it's like you're communicating with this other being, other thing. And, and gently, she's like, Michael. And I say she because it's a very feminine energy. And you can tell a masculine energy and a feminine energy. And it's like, Michael, like you're, you can use some help with how you, you're using attention. You're not using it right. So it's a very nice way of telling you, like, hey, shithead, like, like you got some areas to clean up in your life. <laughs> but she does it in a gentle way. She called you shithead, right? <laughs> uh, kind of, yeah. yeah. In a very gentle way. Um, and I thought that was really fascinating that I got some insight like that that was that specific. And it was so applicable to what I was doing in my life. I was working in a corporate environment as a senior director. I was emailing people all the time. That's how I communicated with other departments. And I was the director of operations. So my job was to make sure the operation was going well, like this process. And I needed to know a little bit about accounting and financial services and uh, student academic affairs and these kinds of things. I needed to know about all of that. Um, so I was always dealing with different departments and there was departments where people were like extremely helpful and friendly and easy to work with. There was departments that were the pain in the ass, you know, and I'm sure that exists in, in, in all, in all corporate environments and jobs and self-employed, whatever. So it was really applicable. Um, and I started to make adjustments and I started to catch myself. It's not like, oh, I'm never going to send a shitty email again, but you just become more mindful, more awake. It's all about becoming more awake. And the word I don't even care for, this whole woke movement, it's, I don't like that word. You That's know? so false. Yeah, but I get it. So yeah. it's like, all right, I shit on it because it's like this trendy thing that people want to hashtag, right? right? But I get it. And the whole thing is like, it's about becoming more awake. Because when you're more awake and you're more conscious, you're more aware. Mm-hmm. And you can stop yourself from the bad behavior. Rather than there's people walking around town uh, like a generating bad behavior everywhere they go. All kinds of bad behavior. But the problem is they're not even conscious to it. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't even know what they're doing. And there's that, you know, really, to go back to religion, you know, forgive them for they know not what they do, you know? And I was like, oh, wow, there's some real power and wisdom in that. You know? I like that. You know? And it makes sense. Like, they don't even know what they're doing. They're being shitheads. They're not even conscious to their own behavior. So becoming awake or aware, if that's more easy for people to digest, is important because then you have the ability to change and adjust. And if you're not working on becoming more aware, then you're just walking around like you're asleep. Yeah, awareness is one of these things I think it's really hard to grasp. I mean, super hard to grasp. And I've had the opportunity of doing enough work on myself to have some experiences where I was made aware of how I was showing up in certain situations. And the, the interesting thing about awareness is once you have it in a particular area, I'm not saying that you know, I'm, I'm not claiming perfection and, sure. and I sure don't have I don't, I a complete awareness of how I show up all the time, but the areas that I am aware of how I show up, I can never go back to being unaware. 
I can never go no, back. No, you can't go back. And so, and so once you have that thing in your life, now you are responsible. Yes. 100%. You're responsible because you're aware and you know. You know what you're doing. That's it. And you can make a choice to not do it and that's okay. But then it's a choice and not like, I had no idea, you know, that whole thing. So, yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in these ancient texts, you know. It's just, it's just you got to really feel things to understand them. And I mean, Wim says that all the time in Wim Hof Method. Feeling is understanding. Feeling is understanding. It's not always thinking is understanding. And that really changed a lot of things for me, too, was just really feeling. And, you know, we were talking about this whole movement and a lot of these old practices coming back. And, you know, people are meditating now. And we're learning from, you know, um, practices from the East and the power of words and prayer and thoughts and frequency and quantum physics and all of that. And there's lots of people talking about it um, through podcasts and and, podcasts. um, you know, different seminars now. It's it's no secret anymore. If you not if you haven't heard about these things, then you're asleep. And you gotta you gotta go put on YouTube and start doing a search. There's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of good information. But the other thing that's really powerful that like really connected me to is like the kingdom of God is within. This was like supposedly a quote, right? Biblical quote by Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is not at church. The kingdom of God, you know, it's within. So what are we doing for our inner practice? If we're not doing anything for any sort of inner practice, then we're not connecting with that at all. Yeah. And that became really apparent to me because I never meditated. I never did any inner work. I just, when I was awake, I was just productive. And when I wasn't productive, I was watching movies and hanging out with people and being social and that stuff, which is all great and wonderful too. It's not like you don't have to do that. I'm not saying that go be a Tibetan monk and live in a cave and meditate all day. But if you really want to connect to your inner power, your inner peace, it's within. And there's many of modes and methods to get there. There's not just one. Breath work is one. Meditation is one. Cold water is one. The plants, sound meditations, gongs. There's uh, shamanic fire ceremonies. These are all inner practices, and they all work that muscle, that surrendering muscle. Because when you're in meditation and you're thinking, 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 and you're not surrendering and letting go and just being, because we are human beings, we're not human doings, um, we're working that muscle. And I think that's a really important muscle. And I, and I want access to that inner power. That inner power helps me in every aspect of my life. It helps me in my relationships with my family. It helps me in my relationships with, you know, with women. It helps me in my relationship and communications and business with people. And I've been vibrating at a much higher frequency after all of this inner work. And beautiful things are occurring in my life. Things are actually coming towards me. I'm not having to hunt everything down. The old, you know, you got to get out there and, you know, work hard, work hard, work hard. I love that. And I have a, I'm a hard worker. And, 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 I, and I think you need that. You can't sit around and ponder all day and expect everything to show up for you. You've got to go out there and you've got to work hard. But there's also an inner practice and a manifestation tool and a muscle that we have to learn and use in this life. And when we work that muscle, things start to show up. Paths becomes a, a little bit more clear. People come into our lives that offer you know, opportunities, whether it be someone like you saying, hey, Mike, you know, I see what you're doing out there on Facebook and the ice bats and all this Wim Hof stuff, and I like what I see. I want to come and talk to you and learn about your story. And then this story gets spread and someone else picks it up and maybe somebody learns something from it. You know, Things start to happen, and I don't have to 
work so hard for those things to happen. Um, so it's a real balance of hard work, but also inner work. And I never really had an inner work practice because I was too focused on my mind. It was all about reading, documentaries, seminars, learning, physical fitness, working out in the gym, pumping iron, maybe I go for a run, that kind of stuff. But I started to work that inner muscle, that, that inner work muscle. I started to get out into nature. I learned, wow, nature has a lot of medicine just by being in nature. And you're in Arizona, we're surrounded by it, which I'm grateful to be here for that. I mean, we can drive an hour and a half north and there's just endless amounts of mountains and open land and beauty, even in our own backyard here with the superstitions and McDowell Mountain and everywhere. There's mm -hmm. nature everywhere. Um, I grew up in a concrete jungle. It's really hard to find nature. There is no nature. There's, you have small little parks, that's it, and handball courts and basketball courts. And I mean, you have to go upstate New York for any of that. So I'm really grateful um, because I've used nature to help with my um, inner work and work that inner muscle. And uh, I've used all these different practices and I found the, the stuff that works for me. And, and, and everybody has to find their source. It's not like, oh, you, you can just do this and this. There are many ways to get there. They're all bridges. The meditation is a bridge. The breath work is a bridge. The Wim Hof method is a bridge to that inner power. The cold water is a bridge. The master plants are a bridge. They're all bridges, they're all tools. So now I, I work with the elements. The elements of nature have provided me with pretty much everything that I need to work that inner muscle. And it's really simple. And I'm a simple guy, I like simplicity. If it's re really complicated and regimented and I have to learn a lot, I don't wanna do too much of that anymore. Where I have to be so engaged, you know? Uh, you know, we did a lot of lot of thinking in the military, a lot of studying, and a lot of engineering because we were flying in helicopters. You got, you got to know flight rules and how the aircraft flies. And you know, in corporate world, there's a lot of thinking involved and strategy and tasks that keep the analytical mind really busy. And then we come home and we watch TV, and that keeps the analytical mind really busy. And everything's just keeping the mind busy. Your cell phones just keep our mind busy, 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 busy. But you know. What are we doing to like just be? What are our practices to just be? Like, oh, sleep, that's it? Well, a lot of people have problems sleeping. Like sleep problems is like a big thing. It's like a thing. It is. You know, you go to a doctor, you're telling me you have problems sleeping, they're going to send you home with a medication. Mm -hmm. You know, so There's we- a pill for everything. Yeah, we have a real hard time settling down and just being with ourselves. And it's really uncomfortable at first, really uncomfortable. Yeah, that's where a lot of the numbing out comes, you know, like you're talking about, whether it's a cell phone or Netflix or- you know, the football game or, you know, even getting lost in a crowd, you know, just being somewhere where you don't have to put attention on yourself and you can literally avoid that inner game altogether because oh, yeah. I think it is the hardest work. And honestly, I think one of the things that prompted me to reach out to you um, and connect was the fact that in what I saw you doing, I didn't see you leapfrogging the work. You know what I mean? Like, I think so many people offer... Um, you know, a solution without a price that it's toxic, right? Like here's something for nothing and nothing of value is created that way in the spiritual world or in the physical world, in my opinion. Sure. So if I'm making a practice of meditation, it's literally difficult work for me. I have to learn to quiet oh, yeah. my mind, right? It's work. If I'm building my body, it's literally difficult work. I'm pushing myself past the point of what I'm comfortable doing, right? Like, so this idea that you can pop a pill or you can just numb out and 
and sort of bypass that, I think is just one of the worst messages perpetrated against modern humanity. Yes, it works for a while, but it's like a beach ball. You know, you can hold it underneath the water for so long, but eventually it's going to slip out and it's going to pop out from underneath the water. And that's what I think, that's what I like to refer to as triggers. You know, we think we have that beach ball underneath the water. Nobody can see it. We're, we're sitting on it and we're floating. And it's a little unstable, but, you know, we can float on that beach ball, right? Yeah. And, you know, the, the minute, like, we make a wrong move or we lean a little bit to the right or to the left, what happens? That thing comes popping out of the water. Oh, yeah. And that's triggers. And when you really start to work that inner muscle, um, you don't get triggered as often. And you don't have to have those emotional responses uh, those emotional flare-ups. Uh, you actually deal with things as they come. So, you know, yeah, I feel like I'm a better human being today because of the work that I've been doing, but I'm not perfect. I still have triggers. I still get triggered. Um, family is always one of those things that will, will get you really fast, the old family trigger, right? Mm. You know, that's why people have so much depression during the holidays and stuff like that. It's like a thing. It's common. Um, but, you know, I, I recover a lot faster now. And I definitely don't go and numb. And I just don't go numb myself and forget about it. I deal with it. Mm. I say I'm sorry. I might not say it right on the spot, but I'll, I'll let it sit. I'll feel it out. I'll sit with that. And then I'll make that phone call and I'll clean that situation up. Where in the past, I just let it linger. Yeah. I, I've seen this uh, firsthand in Christina's family and also in mine. And uh, I pointed this out to Christina, my wife, a few times that um, you know when we do go around family or get around family, excuse me, there's this tendency to uh, fall back into those youthful roles. Old patterns. Yeah, because not only um, are everyone in the household expecting you to be what you were, there's that trigger of that pressure for you to be what you were as well. Yes. And if you're not careful with your boundaries and your coping mechanisms, you fall right back into that. And I think this points to this idea of who you surround yourself with and the emotional ties to those people as well. Yeah, some people are just toxic. And, you know, if they're not in a position to change and, and grow and be vulnerable and be uncomfortable and they're going to stay in that same state, well, you can love them, but I love them from a distance now. Yeah, got to have some boundaries. Yeah, I'm going to love them from a distance until they're ready to make some sort of change. And then I'm available to, to share my energy and time and space with them. Um, I like to refer to it as like, a, like someone in your house. Like right now I'm in your house. If I light up a cigarette in your house, you're going to say, hey, Push that shit out, man. Step outside. Like, <laughs> go outside and smoke out there. Okay. I smoke the cigarette outside. I come back in the house, and we can kind of revisit the conversation where we left off. Now, in the middle of a conversation, if I light up another cigarette, you could be like, dude, what are you doing? I just told you not to not smoke in here. Like, the smoke's affecting my health. It's, like, affecting my house. going to make the house smell, right? And it's, like, not good. Secondhand smoke, right? It's like a thing. Um, and then I go outside. And I finish the cigarette, and then I come back in the house. And it's like, okay, we can pick up where we left off. We can finish the conversation. If I light up the cigarette again, then it's like we've really crossed the boundaries. Now it's a different layer. Now you're not like respecting my, well, you know, I've made multiple examples of not respecting your will of, you know, of, of what you require for your own personal state and health and all of that. I look at energy in a kind of a similar way. You know, when somebody's energy is just chaotic and they're living life really sloppy, you know, if they are willing to go outside and change that and and start to change their behavior patterns, it's like you can let them back into your life and you can have that dialogue and work with them and pick up where you may have left off from old times. But if they're continuing to live, 
that chaotic life and they're not respecting your own boundaries and their energy is crazy because of the way they're living and the decisions that they're making, it's like, hey man, you gotta go outside and this time we're gonna lock the door and I'll see you when you, when, when you, <laughs> when you kind of clean up your, your act. And, yeah. and that's how I treat um, situations in my life now. You know, I always give people the benefit of doubt, um, but I think we're all responsible for our own energy. That spark of life has, um, we've been gifted that spark of life and that spark of life controls this machine, this meat suit that we have. And this meat suit doesn't work without that spark of life. If you've ever seen a dead person, you know when that spark of life is gone. Their body changes. You can feel the presence of death in them, that there's, it's not alive there's anymore. Nothing there. There's nothing there. Yeah. I mean, the skin changes, you know, all of that. But you can just feel that, that that spark is gone. And we don't know where it goes. You know, there's all there's a lot of different religions that have a different idea of where it goes. But they're all kind of talking about the same thing too, right? You yeah. know, the, the idea of heaven and, and hell and, you know, other worlds and in Buddhism, they call it the bardo and stuff like that. But, you know, we're gifted that spark of life and we are 100% responsible for our own energy. And when my energy is affecting yours because of the way I'm using it, you have a right to push me back and, and, and give yourself space energetically. And, um, you know, you see that in everyday life with family, friends, and people that we know, and uh, we can feel their energy when they're when they're off and when they're living sloppy. When people are living sloppy, you feel it. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to know all the details of their slop, but you can feel them when you're talking with them, when you're spending time with them. Um, the types of thoughts that they have, how they perceive the world, how they perceive themselves, because they might not be chaotic to other people and dangerous to other people, but some people have really bad self-talk. They're really bad to themselves. They just, they shit on themselves all day long. And you feel that. And you're like, you want them to stop shitting on themselves. But they do it by their bad talk and their insecurities and all of that. Yeah. I think, you, I think uh, not only can you feel it, you can see it on them. Like they wear their life on their skin yes. in, a, in a lot of ways. You yes. know what I mean? Energetically, everything starts first energetically. And when it's not taken care of, it manifests itself into physical form. I believe this is the origin of all disease, that energetically there's unresolved problematic issues. And when that's not taken care of for a while, well, that starts to build. And then these things build into a variety of different ailments. Yeah, and so this kind of takes us into uh, Wim Hof territory because I know one of his big things is inflammation in the body and how cold therapy you know, can sort of counteract that and give you a greater sense of self, a greater sense of accomplishment, but also greater health and well-being. Yes. Um, so how did you first stumble into that world and how has it impacted your life? Just like ayahuasca. Same thing. I watched the documentary. <laughs> I love documentaries. There's a pattern emerging here. Yeah? There's a pattern. Yeah. Um, I watched a documentary about Wim Hof and I saw it and I thought it was fascinating and awesome and super cool and very interesting, but I wasn't ready to go and do the Wim Hof thing. I just thought it was cool. And I remember sending it to my nephew, who was like, I don't know, 17 at the time, 16. And I was like, I would always send him cool stuff, you know, because I, I wanted him to be interested in some things that I was. I wanted to, to share these experiences. And he thought it was really cool. And that's what it was. And I was like, that was a cool documentary. And I actually watched it like twice. It was like one of those documentaries where I was like, you know, I could watch this a second time. You know, there's like more to learn here. Um, but then he just started showing up, like in my life, like my consciousness. You know, he was on the Joe Rogan, he was on you know different podcasts, it was articles, and it just kept like showing up back on the scene. I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And then there were some friends of mine um, that were practicing it because I had sent it to them, 
I introduced them to it. They didn't even know who he was. I introduced them to it. But they had jumped. They had dove in a little bit faster than I did, and they were actually doing the breathing. And they were doing the the cold baths. They weren't even doing cold baths. They were just like going in the pool in the wintertime. And, and they were like, Mike, this stuff is awesome. Thank you so much. It's helping me out in so many different ways. And I felt guilty. I was like, it's helping this guy out so much, but I'm not even like really doing it. So I started doing it. And um, I learned how to do it the non-traditional way. There was no workshops going on locally here in Arizona. Um, for me to get to Poland at the time, it just didn't make sense because of my job and the vacation time and all of that. So I learned how to do the breathing uh, kind of incorrectly, but it was like kind of working with it. And me and my buddy would go in his backyard and we would do the breathing exercise. And then after the breathing exercise, we would go into a cold tub. And I remember my first ice bath. Um, I was nervous, of course. I don't like the cold. Um, I moved to Arizona for a good reason. I like warm weather. I like warm showers. I like comfort. But I liked his message about discomfort and that being comfortable all the time is not necessarily like what we should be striving for and that comfort actually makes us weak. And I believe that because I had training in search and rescue. So many of my experiences through that period of time was discomfort, was being uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable. Like we were in the middle of the ocean. We'd be flying sometimes in the middle of the ocean. And I would look out the cabin door and it'd be at nighttime. And I would see the waves. And I said, man, it's rough out there today. And it was dark. And we were in a region of the world where the water was cold. And I'd say, fuck, I hope nobody falls overboard tonight. I hope none of these planes crash and someone ejects because I have to go in. I'm on duty right now. I'm the one going in there. Um, but I was prepared to do that. And all of the training that they took us through was all about being uncomfortable. Nothing about it was comfortable. They beat our ass in the water and made us tread water. And I was in the helo dunker and they would turn us upside down, blindfolded underneath the water. And we'd have to escape out. Just Google uh, helo dunker and you'll learn a lot about how that process goes. It basically prepares you for uh, a crash in a helicopter, which is really violent. They tip upside down immediately because all of the the engine compartment and stuff so is on, on top. top yeah. So, you know, you're going to be upside down really fast and it's dark and you got to find your way out a door. How do you find your orientation when you're <laughs> the blindfolded? Minute, the minute you hit the water, boom, the cabin starts to fill up. You grab a reference point. Mm. You hold your breath because you can't escape right away because the rotor is still turning. When that rotor is still turning, you try to escape out the window, you're going to swim right into a spinning rotor and your head's going to get lobbed off. So we would wait, I think, like, 20 to 30 seconds, I forget what the time limit was, that once it hit and turned upside down, then you start your count. Then you count to 30 or 20. I forget what it is. My Navy friends out there, they're going to, you know, they're going to give me shit for that because I forget. <laughs> You're out of the club now, You're out of the club now, yeah. yeah. You turn upside down and you hold your breath and you're upside down in a seatbelt underneath the water in the dark. And because you have your hand on that reference point, you have a general idea of what's up, what's down, what's left, what's right. I got you. And you hold on to that and you find your way out the cabin door or the window or whatever area you can escape out of. And we practice that. And that's extremely uncomfortable. And it was frightening for me, my first couple of rides doing that. But I learned how to work that muscle and I learned how to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations in many years of my life. But the minute I got to corporate world, all that went away. My life was about comfort. Oh, a nice house in Scottsdale and lots of stuff. And, oh, I need a television in every room for what? You know, because it's cool to have a TV in every room. And I took warm showers. I didn't do anything uncomfortable really anymore. I mean, I was just doing all of the 
basic stuff that people in the suburbs do. Yeah. Just basic stuff. I wasn't being uncomfortable. But I used to know how to do it. So it was a nice process for me to like actually get back to some of those, those things that really developed me in such a strong way. And Wim Hof talked a lot about comfort. So the cold water was not comfortable. I stepped into the cold water. I didn't even know how to do the, the breathing technique that well. So I would just kind of fight it out, like deal with that cold. But the cold will actually is so powerful that it will actually put you in a state of surrender. Because if you try to fight the cold, like you have no chance. The cold is too, too strong. You might think you're tough mentally, but if you fight, it's going to kick your ass. So it actually forces you to surrender. And when you surrender, then you can get into these deep meditative states. So all that problem that I had with meditation, I can't get my mind to calm down and be the observer like I would read, cold water puts you right there. And I would get into deep states of meditation, and I would sit, and I would do two, three, four, five minutes. That's not the protocol. Now it's like two minutes is, is fine. It's enough time. But I was just playing with it. And then I got to the point where I was like, okay, like I'm playing with this stuff. I really like it. It's helping me. It's like giving me this inner strength that I'm learning about again, that I have like forgotten about, you know, for a while. Uh, the plants were like that too, because every time you drink that ayahuasca, it's like, you know, what's coming. Like it's, you know, there can be some discomfort with that as well. So it was really like this revisiting stuff that I had learned. It was just like another tool and I liked it. And it was fast. And it was easy. And that's what I liked about it. It was easy in the sense that it wasn't a super long protocol. It was like the breathing exercise took about 15 minutes tops, a two-minute ice bath, and then you'd spend a couple of minutes warming your body back up naturally, and then you were kind of done with your session. So everything could be done within an hour easily with plenty of time left over. So I really loved the simplicity of it. But most of all, I was really inspired by Wim and his message and his life and uh, the way he communicated, he communicated from the heart. And that resonated with me because I was, you know, I was already on that vibration because I had been learning from these plants. And, um, you know, it, and, and that was like something that I was learning already was like how to communicate from my heart and feel more and not to be so much in my mind all the time and not to overanalyze things. Um, and I saw him doing that very freely. And I said, wow. This dude's powerful. So he had uh, this thing called the Wim Hof Method Experience, and it was in Los Angeles, where basically hundreds of people show up, and it's a variety of seminar and guest speakers from his organization and scientists talking about the medicinal benefits of the Wim Hof Method and how the immune system works. And I love anatomy and physiology, so I was just fascinated by all that. And then you get to see Wim, and Wim's just on stage, and he's talking about his story and um, so I went through the Wim Hof Method experience in Los Angeles, and I came out of there invigorated. I just felt wonderful. I made the road trip by myself. It was like one of those trips where you like you go by yourself. You know, you don't give a shit if anybody comes with you. You're not trying to like get a friend to go. I didn't care if anyone came. I was like, I'm buying this ticket and I'm going. If somebody would like to come with me, great. If not, I could care less. I got an Airbnb, and it was just like a nice two day ordeal. I went to LA. I did the, the experience. I met some really cool people. And the tribe of people that were attracted to this work was like, oh, wow, these are like people I have stuff in common with. They were like that we had similar interests and they were like willing to be vulnerable. And anytime anybody's willing to be vulnerable now, I see that as, wow, they're powerful. I used to think they were weak, but that was the old me. Now I'm like, wow, he's powerful. He can be vulnerable freely. 
I like this guy. And um, I started to see those types of people and I was like, I really liked what I saw. So when I got back from that trip, I made the decision that I was going to pursue um, an instructor certificate and that that would be something that I would do on the side and I would still work my corporate job and I would do that on the side as, I don't know, just a tool to help people and uh, just kind of do something that I loved because I was getting really bored with my job. You know, I was bored with it. I wasn't challenged anymore. Like there was, my creativity was just, there was no, there's no ability to have a lot of creativity in corporate. There's too many layers. You got the legal team reviewing, you got the regulatory team reviewing. It's just so complex. By the time it gets through the end process, you like, I, don't even recognize what you started. Yeah, it's like, you know, it was just, it just cripples creativity. So I wasn't feeling fulfilled, fulfilled at all. And um, Wim Hof like gave me that little spark again. And I was like, oh, this is something that I'd be really interested in. So then I started to go down that rabbit hole. So then I listened to all his podcasts and I really got to know him, right? Like through the podcast and his story. I started to watch other documentaries that he did. Um, I became a little bit obsessed, you know. That's how I get. I really like when I focus on something, I really focus on it. And then, um, and then I signed up for the advanced course. Um, actually, no, I left my job. I left my job because I had been working on that through the plants, and this was like the final evolution for me. It was like if I'm going to really step into my power, if I'm really going to make some significant changes in my life I have to change that too and the golden handcuffs have to go away (laughs) you know this is all about being uncomfortable yeah for sure and it's uncomfortable when you leave the job and then you got to think about you know where's the money going to come yeah your certainty goes away immediately yeah and then all that status you know that shit that comes with it so I had to let all that shit go and I was completely fine with it and I let it go and I went to the advanced course and that was a two-day workshop and that was out in LA as well and I got to meet their instructors, and their instructors are sharp, really sharp. I was really impressed. And I've seen a lot of good instructors over the years. I had good instructors in the military. I've been to plenty of seminars. I, I knew a good presenter and a shitty presenter, and I knew people who were just regurgitating information that they had read early, and I knew people that were like really speaking from the heart. And um, they had uh, two instructors there, uh, Dr. Tricia, who is a chiropractor turned Wim Hof instructor, out in California, and then Casper, uh, who was like a, um, he was a teacher for many years, and he um, became a Wim Hof instructor, and he had his own story that he shared with us, which was very inspiring, and he was laser, like this guy was like, he knows how to command a room, and I was like, this guy's sharp, this is a good group of people, and then the people that were being attracted to become instructors were awesome, there was just so many powerful stories, one after the other, and a wide variety of different walks of life, from scientists to doctors to pilots to everyday, you know, corporate folks to self-employed entrepreneurs, yoga. It was really accepting and open and non-judgmental and really close. And I was found myself having authentic conversations. And that's how I usually judge an environment. If there's like a lot of authentic conversation going on, I'm like, all right, this is a good place. If there's a lot of bullshit, like, so what do you do for a living? And we're just going to talk about like status stuff and junk. And, oh, have you seen that new series on, you know, CBS? And we're going to talk about the series, you know, uh, to me, it's, I don't like it. It's just, it's, it's, it's boring but there was a lot of authenticity in the way people were sharing. And I really, uh, 
that really motivated me and really inspired me. So then the next phase was to go through the master's module. But there was a big gap between the advanced course and the master's module. So then I started um, practicing the Wim Hof as an instructor, which was part of the homework. So then I started having these little mini workshops, um, you know, at my house and having small groups and um, learning that muscle of how to teach people the Wim Hof method, but also teach people, you know, things that I've learned along the way and mindset, you know, power, you know, mindset is one of the three pillars. So the three pillars of the Wim Hof method is the breathing exercise, mindset and commitment, and cold therapy. Everybody focuses on the cold therapy. Every time you see a picture of Wim Hof, anything, it's always somebody in a cold lake or an ice bath. And people think that you show up to a workshop and we're just going to put you in an ice bath and have you tough it out. That's not what happens. Believe me, the cold part is the very, very, very end. And there's a lot of training leading up to that. And there's a lot of science leading up to that. So the people who are analytical and, and they like science, there's a lot for them because they can, like this is rooted in science. It's been university studies, which makes this um, practice so unique or this method, should I say, so unique. Um, but also um, uh, there's a lot of theory because there's a lot of things we don't know yet and we have to accept we don't know everything. And the power of the mind is one of those things. We don't know shit about the mind. We think we do. There's a lot we don't know about the mind. And he's breaking a lot of the social norms about the mind and the autotomic nervous system and the nervous system and uh, the vagus nerve and all of these things that are really critical. And a lot of people are getting a lot of therapeutic relief. But it's not just about the therapeutic relief either. Yeah, it's gonna help you with your anxiety. And I'll say that with confidence coming from a person that had anxiety, you know, it will help you with anxiety. It would help with a wide variety of autoimmune and there's lots of science to back it up. Um, but when you start to work that muscle of being comfortable in uncomfortable situation, you really get a strong mind, a really strong will. And uh, that was really beautiful for me. And um, that's really transferred to a lot of things in my everyday life of learning how to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations, which was a muscle that I used to work. I used to work that muscle a lot. But I let that muscle disappear for 15 years before I started working it out again. Yeah, there seems to be a, obviously a common thread in, in your story, and this is something we definitely vibe on, doing hard things, you know, getting uncomfortable. Um, but I think that, like you mentioned, the golden handcuffs, right? There's this tendency to once you've made it, man, hey, you know what? I'm just going to stay here. I'm going to ride it out. You know, I'm going to close my eyes and just take it easy, smooth sailing from here on out. But the problem with that is like life isn't that way, man. Like real life is up and it's down. It's never even. And so you see these people rolling through life dead eyed and sort of uninterested and, you know, just going through the motions. Kind of like I mentioned with the, the churchgoers earlier, it's like something they're supposed to do. Yeah. And I think that, Pressure. yeah, man, and the cold, I mean, it gets your attention. It, it wakes you up immediately. Yeah. You, you walk away knowing full well that you did something and you had a response. Now, whether that response was positive for you or negative for you is for you to decide. But you, you lived, you either hit a peak or hit a valley or both. Yeah, and the cold is a teacher as well, you know, and I started to learn about these elements. I've been talking about this through the two podcasts that we've been doing and uh, conversations and really mentioning the elements, the elements, the elements, the elements, the elements. And Wim always said that the cold is my teacher. The cold is my teacher. And I did not really understand that when he said that, but it intrigued me because when I was down in Peru and Brazil, the shamans would always say the plants are their teachers. 
So he was saying the same thing, just a different element of nature. Mm -hmm. And I started to like make this bond with the cold. And I started to learn how to really be comfortable in cold. And I would push it. And I don't recommend this to anybody, but I was pushing it. I would go 20 minutes, 32 degree water, you know, deep meditative states. I would hallucinate. And um, I'm not saying that's good for you. Don't go out there and do that, please. Um, there's, you know, uh, it's really challenging on the body and stuff. But I learned how powerful we really were and how much I can really endure. And I learned not how to fight my way through the cold. I learned how to surrender. Surrender is the biggest gift that I have learned is learning how to surrender and to let go. And when I surrender in that cold, I can get into a comfortable state relatively quick. Now when I step into 32-degree water, the first 15, 20 seconds is really uncomfortable. It's like, oh, shit, oh, shit, you should get out, get out, get out, get out. But I surrender, and I allow, and I trust myself, and I get into that state, and that state puts me in theta. And when I'm in theta, I'm in deep meditation. And when I'm in deep meditation, I do a lot of self-reflecting, and I release a lot of emotions into that water. And it's a really good daily therapeutic practice for me. Not only is it good for my mind, but it's good for my body. And the science supports it. The noradrenaline, the anti-inflammatory, making our own medicine, keeping inflammation at bay. I have a really nice machine. It's called the InBody 570. It's expensive. I got it from my center that we're going to be opening. It's like a $9,000 machine. And it, and it tests, infl- sorry, it tests uh, visceral fat. And I'm not a fat guy by any means, but I, I didn't have the best diet. Over the years, I was able to get away with like eating shitty because I was, my body type was like, wouldn't store fat too much. But I started to build up this visceral fat. And the visceral fat is the stuff that kills you. It's, it also causes inflammation, the visceral fat itself. And um, cardiac disease is like the number one killer in the United States and also in many other places around the world. I know it is in Brazil as well. They eat a ton of meat down there. And um, in Mexico, it's also the number one killer. There's lots of population in both Brazil, Mexico, and the United States combined. So visceral fat is not something that you want a lot of. And you don't even need to be obese and have a lot like a giant belly to have a high visceral fat percentage. It's that fat that's around the organs. When I first started doing Wim Hof, I had a friend that had a machine, and I did the visceral fat test. And the test basically sends this pulse through your body. My visceral fat was at like 12 or 13. But when I checked it recently on the in-body scan screen, my visceral fat went all the way down to five and right now it's at five that's insane yes so it just from the cold therapy. just from the cold therapy i'm just doing Mm. cold therapy and the breathing because the breathing exercise also reduces inflammation most people don't know that we all know that cold water reduces inflammation i mean you know in any house around america if you bang your knee someone's going to go to the freezer and get you an ice pack and say hey put this on your knee or something or if you have some back pain they're going to throw you know a bag of peas on your back right but you know, so we, we have an idea that cold has an influence on inflammation, but most people don't know how. Most people don't even know what inflammation really is. They know it's just kind of this thing that you don't want, right? But they don't know the science behind it. So I learned all the science and, and, and I had to study all of that and, and perform and that this knowledge as well uh, throughout my instructor course, uh, which was challenging. Um, but the breathing exercise is so powerful because not only... Are you breathing deeply and filling your body full of oxygen, which we just don't do and routinely, but it also helps to get you into these meditative states of deep calm and peacefulness and joy. 
which is very therapeutic and we need that. But it also creates the fight or flight response. And that hacking, it's like a hack, creates the fight or flight response. And those hormones are flowing through your body. And they're also taking inflammation way, 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 way down. So therapeutically, I'm always keeping my inflammation at bay. Because I'm getting inflammation. I don't eat perfect. And I still have stress. And inflammation comes from all of these places. But because I have a solid daily practice of doing the breath work and doing you know, the mindset training and doing the cold... I'm always pushing back against inflammation. And my body has changed significantly. I've lost 20 pounds from doing cold therapy. I've reduced my visceral fat down to uh, 5 from 12 based on the scan from in-body. I have um, lost just that, that excess you know, weight. You know, I'm actually look, I'm lighter, but I look more muscular because you know, I've got rid of a lot of that, that added you know, uh, inflammation in water. And uh, my mind is, is stronger than it's ever been. So it's yeah. been really a powerful practice for me. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the uh, visceral fat versus brown fat. I know this is a huge component to the method. Yeah, so brown fat's an interesting thing. I didn't know too much about it. Brown fat, B-A-T, brown adipose tissue. And brown adipose tissue is something that we are born with. We have it. It uh, helps with our um, uh, heating uh, mechanism. It, you know, we can basically raise the temperature in our body a couple of ways, kinetically through shivering or brown fat activation. And when you're a baby, you don't have a lot of muscular development. So, you know, think about it. In the United States, yeah, the baby might be born in a you know, house in a hospital, climate controlled. But guess what, folks? There's babies being born right now in Siberia where, you know, they might be out in the wilderness or they don't have the same access to comfort like we do here or in other places around the world. So... You know, humans are really, really, really strong and we can adapt. So brown fat is a thing that we have a lot of when we are young. But as we continue to live in cold, sorry, in uh, temperature controlled environments, that brown adipose tissue starts to decrease and we have less of it and less of it. So we don't rely on it as a source to uh, warm our bodies back up. So as you start to expose yourself to the cold using cold showers, which is what I would recommend you do first. Don't jump into an ice bath when you're not trained. Use cold showers. It's cold in Arizona right now, relatively cold. And the water is relatively cold. Use it as a tool. Just start with 30 seconds. But you start to build that brown adipose tissue. When you start to build the brown adipose tissue, I believe at 64 degrees, the brown adipose tissue activates. And when it activates, it uses the white visceral fat as fuel to heat the body back up. So when you get into that practice of I am, you know, the extremes where I am putting my body into cold water and now I am allowing myself to warm up naturally, not with a bunch of blankets and a warm shower immediately, you're activating that brown fat and sometimes also the kinetic energy of the shivering and that raises your metabolism and that powers up your immune system as well. Cold water has been used for immune system for a really long time and that brown fat activation allows to uh, really help with uh, um, you know, losing fat overall but also using that white visceral fat as fuel and um, heating the body back up. So it's a physiologically it's it's a really good healthy practice yeah this is uh this is something that was fairly new on my radar and you um 
sort of broke it down for me when we spoke originally yep. about the importance of it and, and how it could in fact sort of cannibalize the, the bad, I guess the visceral fat in your body. And then when we started talking about the breath work, it was interesting because I think a lot of people have this idea that you actually burn fat, right? We use the word burn fat. You're going to burn fat, but that's not actually what happens when fat leaves your body. It leaves your body in the form of gas. You mm -hmm. breathe it out. And I'm just wondering if there's been any studies yet that sort of correlate the breathing method to the fat loss that you're referring to because of the fact that you are oxygenating the body so greatly. There's a lot of research that's being done right now on brown adipose tissue and obesity. Matter of fact, there's a scientist that I met with uh, three weeks ago. I think he was at my house. We did Wim Hof together. And he's from Germany. He's a scientist. And he's studying uh, brown fat and obesity at the National Institute of Health here. And um, he uh, shared with me some, you know, just interesting uh, theories and interesting data that they're collecting on brown fat and, and obesity and how it really helps with that. The breathing exercise is a wonderful anti-inflammatory tool. Now, when we have inflammation, the first thing we think of is get, take an anti-inflammatory, right? Take a pill. There's, there's inflammation pills on the market, and it's really standard that if you have any sort of in injury of any kind, you're going to be put on some sort of anti-inflammatory pill. There's also foods that we eat that cause a lot of inflammation that most people aren't really conscious to. Mm. So just by changing your diet, fasting or intermittent fasting or periodic fasting, and then doing breath work, you are really fighting back against inflammation. Because when you release fight-or-flight hormones, something like epinephrine or adrenaline, and that starts to flow through your body, that suppresses the innate immune system. It suppresses the inflammatory response. And because there's stress and chronic stress, which is a real killer, most people are walking around with high levels of infl inflammation. They're not even aware of it. When you go to the doctor, you don't get an inflammation test. They don't test your inflammation. You know, We know we have inflammation when it's obvious. If I roll my ankle hiking and my ankle blows up and fills up with water and it looks really funky, it's obvious. Yeah, there's inflammation there. There's water retention. But we don't check our water, extracellular water, intracellular water, inflammation at any time um, unless it's obvious or if we know that there's some sort of issue. And people who really struggle with this is autoimmune. If you have an autoimmune disease, your body is constantly fighting and constantly creating this inflammatory response. And rheumatoid arthritis is very painful. And there's people with Crohn's that have like... Um, you know, uh, issues, digestive, issues, digestive yeah. issues because of the inflamed gut. Mm -hmm. So, you know, changing your diet is a start and it helps. You start eating less foods that are of an inflammatory nature and the cold water and the breathing really is like, it's like taking a baseball bat to it. And like really, you know, it's like a, it's like a power swing. It's a gang fight. Yes. It's a gang fight. You're bringing in the big troops, the big dogs. That's it. When you're fighting inflammation. So if you're out there fighting inflammation, if you have autoimmune, look into the Wim Hof method. It's simple. It's easy. It's abundant. And that's what I love about it. It's not like, oh, take the Wim Hof method and you're going to spend thousands of dollars learning this technique and you have to like go through it you know, uh, you know, a six month long course just to learn how to do it. No, I will teach it to you in four hours and you will learn the science. You will learn everything that you need to know about it and you will be able to do it on your own every day for the rest of your life. You'll leave my workshop with that tool for the rest of your life. And, 
Um, that's a tool that you can use in, in multiple environments to deal with stress, chronic stress, anxiety, depression. If you have autoimmune, you can use that to fight back, basically creating your own medicine to fight back and suppress the innate immune system and suppress the inflammatory cytokine markers. Um, and then also the mind training that's involved and the meditation. And we talked about the benefits of meditation and that inner work. Right. So it's really all-encompassing. That's what I love about it. And I love the simplicity of it. And I love Wim's message. And I'm proud to be part of his team. And uh, his family is wonderful. I got to meet uh, his daughters. You know, they're involved in the, the organization and they, they help facilitate um, um, you know, the, the Wim Hof Method Academy. And um, I'm just really proud and happy to be part of his team here in the United States. There's not too many of us. There's about 60 or so mm -hmm. instructors. Uh, there's a lot in Europe, and it's growing in the U.S. It's growing even in Europe. It's growing in Australia like crazy. Now it's growing in South America and Central America. The first Wim Hof Method instructor certified in Mexico was at my house also three weeks ago, and he's in Mexico City, and he d defeated and I'll use that word for all you doctors out there that are listening. He defeated his Lyme disease that was crippling his life and really problematic. And he was going to the, one of the best doctors in the country up in San Francisco, flying from Mexico City to San Francisco regularly mm -hmm. to get the best advice that the United States of America has to offer when it comes to Lyme disease. And he was not making very much progress. He stopped all of the protocols of the, the doctor's, you know, uh, rec, you know, recommendations to fight this Lyme disease, the antibiotics, all that shit. And he did Wim Hof Method and Wim Hof Method only. And he has no symptoms anymore of the Lyme disease. And his blood work has come back, uh, pos you know, clean of, of the Lyme disease. Really? And he's living a full life. He's hiking the, the, he hiked the tallest mountain in all of Mexico, which I think is like 19,000 <laughs> feet. It's like super tall and cold and windy and all that and he'll be planning a retreat actually where he's going to take a bunch of us and we're going to hike uh, a few of the tallest mountains in Mexico sometime this year in 2019 um, and that's Lyme disease and I've seen a wide variety of different people fighting a wide variety of different ailments um, from multiple sclerosis and now there's new research coming out on schizophrenia um, we talked about the wide variety of autoimmune deficiencies uh, or diseases um, and then athletic performance. Right now, I had the opportunity to train three Olympians. Well, two of them are Olympian hopefuls. They're wrestlers. And they are on track to represent Team USA in the 2020 Olympics in Japan. And they're using the Wim Hof Method, cold water breathing exercise, mindset training to help lift their game in their sport, which is, you know, they're at the top. Yeah, if you're on the, the world stage. They're on the world stage. And I got an opportunity to work with a swimmer who won a gold. He won a gold in Athens in 2004. And he does Wim Hof with me at my house out here in Arizona. And he represents South Africa. And I believe he had the 50, he has, I think he still has it, the fastest 50 meter, uh, maybe butterfly in the world. Uh, but he's won a silver, he's won a gold. He, I mean, he's a stud. And uh, there's a good chance he'll be back in 2020 Olympics as well, represent South Africa. And he sees the benefits of the breathing exercise, mindset training, and cold therapy. So I'm working with athletes. I'm working with sick people. I'm working with people who are just dealing with anxiety and want to feel more clear and present. Um, I'm working with people who are obese. I have a gentleman right now I'm working one-on-one -on -one with, and he's 280 pounds, and he's five foot eight, 
he's, you know, he wants to lose weight fast. Yeah. And we did the in-body scan and we got a really good base of where he's at. Um, his visceral fat, his, you know, uh, fat to muscle ratio, his inflammation, all of that. Um, and also, um, his body fat percentage and we're using cold water therapy to drop those pounds jump start it, yeah. and, and also, you know, uh, remove that, that white visceral fat as well, uh, which would be great for the longevity of his health. Yeah, there's definitely something to the inflammation piece. I think one of the things that was most interesting about the whole Wim Hof story is the fact that he's basically put his body at the mercy of science. Yes. And he's been tested and tested and tested and tested. And the story about the, uh, what is it, the endotoxin they in- inject him with. Yep. And he fights it off with, you know, whereas other people are not able to do so. But then he's able to train other people how to do the same thing, yep. which is absolutely fantastic. So there's got to be something there scientifically it's been observed scientifically it's been measured yeah they measured it they can't refute it anymore and that's why he's so bold and he always says he's like i didn't create breathing or cold water (laughs) therapy i mean this is actually used by indigenous cultures from around the world i think i mentioned this in our last podcast the greeks the romans indigenous people of the andes mountains people of siberia um you know that famous painter that cut his ear off and go would take ice baths to treat depression. So ice water, cold water has been around a long time and um, it'll, it will continue to be around for a long time. But what's unique about Wim is that he's taking this method to science and universities that are curious and want to study him. Uh, he has gone and subjected himself to scientific scrutiny and um, the research is coming out and it's really positive. The last one that they did was at Wayne State University in Michigan over the power of his mind. Um, and that video is out on um, YouTube. And uh, they did a really good job putting together uh, the video. I show that in my workshop. And um, the experiment that you were talking about was the endotoxin, which if you get injected with an endotoxin, it will create immediate flu-like symptoms and make you feel really uncomfortable, really sick, fever, nausea. Um, inflammation, all of that, just like you would if you're low energy, right? When you have the flu and just by using this breathing exercise, he was able to suppress his innate immune system, which suppresses the inflammatory cytokines, which removes the symptoms. So they thought he was superhuman and he says, no, I'm not superhuman. I can teach this. And he taught a group of uh, students of his that were not practice in the Wim Hof method ever. It was their first time learning it. He taught them in five days. And then he took them all the way back to the university in, um, in the Netherlands, uh, Radboud Rad University. I always say it wrong. I don't have that Netherlands accent. <laughs> Radboud. Um, and they all passed 100% score. So it works that fast and it's that easy and it's wonderful. Yeah, he's like the perfect test subject because he has a twin brother. He has a twin brother. Yeah, so it's kind of easy to compare, you know, genetic code to genetic code and see the responses. But one of the things that I think was um, also very cool about him is his outlook and the fact that he sort of talks about promoting happiness. Yes. And I love that, you know, because I feel like that's such a lost art. Lost. You yeah. know, I mean, we, people try to buy it, you know, people try to, you know, numb themselves out when they don't have it. Yeah. You know, you're bombarded with images of fake, happy people all the time. Yeah. But his message is about really getting back to, you know, what does it take to be happy? And that that's just so beautiful. And to know that 
you're here in town now and you're getting ready to open up a center of your own to start spreading the love, man. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, health, strength, and happiness. The Wim Hof Method uh, has really inspired me to look into uh, a lot of modalities and elements. I really like the idea of preventative like healthcare because you know there's this whole debacle about healthcare, and it's really interesting because you know a lot of people are really stressed out about healthcare, and there's all these political debates about healthcare, and there's really no solution. I mean, at the end of the day, like it just keeps getting more expensive. Um, there's more, more medications, uh, then these medications are causing other ailments and people are suing. And I know I had a family member that got caught in this whole statin, you know, taking statins and the statins caused uh, potential type two diabetes. And it's just a revolving chaotic door and everyone just wants the healthcare system to be fixed. And there's this left right debate about whether healthcare should be free and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I try not to get too involved in it anymore because it's just too big. So I asked myself the question, okay, like, what can I do? Like, I'm obviously passionate about it because it like bothers me. And then I see like my family members working two jobs. I'm like, why are you working two jobs? Like you don't get an opportunity to sleep. Well, I have to work the night job because um, I need healthcare for the family. So that means you get off of work, you don't sleep, and then you go do a day job. And the only reason why you're working that night job is because they offer medical benefits. And so you have medical benefits for your family. But that means you're not getting much sleep. You get like intermittent sleep here and there. And then you're always sick, right? You're always sick because you work in a hospital and there's lots of illness going on there. But you're not sleeping. Your body's not resting. You're not recovering. So you're always sick. Such a killer. Yes. And it really hurt me. It really bothered me to know that like this is what people are doing. And I'm lucky. Like, I've been lucky. I was military, so I got access to the VA care. And even though people shit on it, it's not that good. You know, if I need to go to the hospital, it's there. But there's people don't have that option because right. they can't afford it. So I said, what can I do? So me and uh, my good friend, close friend, and now business partner, Jesse Morang, um, we came up with an idea of how we can utilize these kind of natural modalities as a preventative maintenance because I haven't been sick in years and I don't get sick, but I've had this really good practice for a while now of really strong belief, one, and that's like mindset training, belief in mind, and we can have a whole conversation about that, but I'll just keep it at that. It's belief um, and preventative measures. And a lot of people want to complain about the healthcare system, but they're not doing anything to help themselves. It's like, dude, put down the soda. Put down the soda, yeah. put down the fast food, shut the television off, go for a walk, go for a hike on the weekend, stop worrying, stop stressing, stop all of these toxic behaviors, take care of your body, right? Um, and it doesn't just necessarily mean lifting weights or going to the gym because a lot of people are doing that too and I see them in the gym and they're not healthy. Their mind's not healthy. I can see it. That can be an addiction too. Yes, that yeah, could be an addiction sure. too. So I said, how can we solve this? How can we at least have some sort of impact? And we came up with uh, optimization. And the name of the center is called Optimize. And it's O-P-T-I-M-Y-Z-E. spelled, you know, a little different. That's what happens when you try to buy domain names these days. <laughs> There's not too many available. They're all taken, yeah. Yeah, optimize.me is the website. And we're opening March 1st. And essentially, I've worked with hundreds of people of all ages in Wim Hof workshops. Some are looking to unlock the natural healing powers that are within. 
us all to really fight serious health conditions right now. And most people are taking preventative action to fight disease before it starts. And when I started to look what was preventing people from getting um, you know, the hot and cold exposure, because I learned a lot about heat exposure as well, sauna use and stuff like that, and breath work, uh, they needed to truly maximize their results. And this was incredibly powerful work. Um, it, it was just, there was all of these answers like all around, like heat and cold and breathing and meditation and sound and education and stuff that I just saw that the general public was not aware of. And I learned that by you know teaching these workshops and the types of questions that people would ask. Um, from that, we've really worked to design an experience that also provides community and accountability for, for members. And that was really powerful, where we actually perform body scans with the in-body machine, cutting-edge technology to align our members' regimen with what's best for their body, age, and their health goals. And then we check in regularly with them to improve every day. Uh, we, knew, we know what gets measured, and we manage that, and we combine that with natural healing powers of the elements of nature. And we do that with saunas, uh, compression therapy, cold tubs, uh, education classes, breathing. Um, we're going to have IVs, push IVs, vitamins, a lot of deficient, a lot of people out there are deficient in vitamins. Um, and uh, so we have really good data-driven uh, processes. And we have a center, and it's going to be on 38th Street in Indian School. It's in Arcadia. It's kind of a, you know, cool cool area yes center of the city you know center of phoenix and um we're shooting for a march 1st grand opening and it'll be membership based and uh folks can actually sign up now and get in early where they're going to get a really good membership price at 69 dollars a month and that price will go up once we open and they can become a member and have access to all the equipment have access to the classes have access to the education have access to us um and we're also going to teach Wim Hof Method workshops out of there on a monthly basis, too. So folks that want to go through the Wim Hof Method will have an opportunity to, um, you know, visit the center, go through a workshop. And, you know, if they choose to be a member, you know, after the workshop, they can do that as well. That's amazing, man. It's super powerful stuff and super valuable. I know you took me. I had the benefit of going through one of your foundations courses and uh, definitely walked away with a different perspective of what it represented and uh, I'll go into that uh, another time. But before I ask my last question, why don't you tell everyone how they can best get in touch with you and what they need to do if they want to jump on the uh, Optimize offer? Great. Thank you. Um, so right now I'm operating off of Facebook and Instagram. If you go on Facebook, it's under uh, Michael the Arc, and it's also my Instagram handle. And you could follow me there, and that's where I've been posting uh, Wim Hof Method Fundamentals Workshop Advertising. And also we do group sessions for the folks that go through Wim Hof that want to continue the practice in a guided session. And that's been working out really well locally. Um, so Instagram and uh, Facebook. I'm still developing my website. It should be built uh, probably about a week or two from now, uh, depending on just... You should know. be up by the time we air this. Okay, great. Yeah. And that's uh, www.michaelthearc.com. And for the center, it's optimize, O-P-T-I-M-Y-Z-E dot me. And that's the website. And we also are on Facebook and Instagram as well. And just getting all the social media stuff started. And we're about to launch the website. 
um, and just get get all of it out there before March first. It's been <laughs> Tying a, up all those loose ends. Yeah, right? a, lot a lot of, of juggling, and this world of being an entrepreneur is new and fascinating, and wonderful. And um, yeah, that's how you can find me. Awesome, man. So, what is what will success look like for you and Jesse once the center opens? Oh, it's a great question. Um, you know, you could always talk about like the financial stuff. Okay, we have lots of members and, you know, people are participating in, in all of the different, you know, modalities and they're coming to our classes and workshops. You know, that's obviously going to be one measure, of course, and then multiple centers around the country and really expanding this idea of kind of uh, using uh, these different tools for preventative, you know, health. Um but really the community has been the, like, that's like, that's what really touches my heart. When you see people coming together as a community and networking <clears throat> and finding happiness and fun in like working on this kind of mission together to be healthier, happier, stronger, um, feeling more alive, taking health back into their, to their own hands. Not just like, oh, I'm sick. <clears throat> I'm going to go to the doctor. Hey doctor, can you fix me? Can you fix me? Do you have anything to fix me? Like just getting people to start changing their perspective. And I've been seeing that already, working with the plans, working with the Wim Hof method, working with the one-on-one -on -one capacity and all the integration work that I do. Um, but really to see that expand beyond my small community of Phoenix, Arizona here and the people that I know here, when I start to see that expand outside, when it becomes bigger than, than I can really even imagine and to see these centers opening up around the country and people participating and get that same kind of uh, high of uh, feeling good again and connecting with people and, and learning and educating themselves and taking responsibility. That to me is success and I'll be happy. I'll be happy, um, you know, just seeing people really um, take control back and, and not be a victim anymore. And uh, I don't know how to measure that, but you know, I feel that when I talk to people. And when I see people taking action and no longer having that victim story, doctor, fix me, can you fix me? <laughs> I got a cough. And they really like taking health back into their own hands. I feel that. And I've met a lot of wonderful people, hundreds of people now from teaching. And um, it's been really inspiring and I'm really happy I'm on this path and I'm happy to share this with all of you. And I really appreciate you inviting me and listening to my story and giving me an opportunity to reflect because I didn't think any of this through. I said, I'm just going to come here and answer questions and <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> so, I think we did all right. Yes. I yeah, agree. dude, I, it's been my pleasure. I appreciate you letting me pick your brain for so long. Um, you know, guys, if you haven't picked it up yet, Michael is a wealth of knowledge. I definitely want to encourage you guys to reach out to this guy. Super genuine, super honest dude. He's going to tell it like it is. He's going to help you get from point A to point B. His new center is going to be nothing short of amazing, and I can't wait to get down there and try some of the stuff out for myself. Awesome. So until then, guys, check him out. I'll put all the links in the show notes, and we'll see you guys in the next episode of Hardwater Radio. Take care. Peace out.